my name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Embers to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Right, today I'm sitting here with Tom Bullhill. He uh, is a 30-year veteran of Orange County Fire Rescue, a founding member of Squad One, Orange County's Special Operations Unit. Uh, he is the president of the Firehood Foundation, and uh, he is also pretty well known for the, the March of the Bull, which he began marching from the zero mile marker in Key West. Uh, this was in 2018. He marched from Key West to Tallahassee to raise awareness um, for cancer in, in the fire service and uh, also to honor uh, some fallen members of, uh, of Orange County Fire Rescue in the fire service. Um, it, it grew as he went. Uh, and it was his, his actions that really shined a spotlight on uh, how cancer has been taking the lives of so many uh, firefighters. And um, as a result, there, uh, there's been some legislation that uh, now certain types of cancer are recognized as being work-related. So it's a, a presumptive law that if a firefighter is diagnosed with a certain form of cancer, it would be covered under workers' comp. Um, now with the Firehood Foundation, he does marches and he teaches classes to bring awareness um, to the cancer in the fire service and to uh, PTSD and um, really it's that that silent killer that uh, you know there's such a stigma in in public safety that if you reach out and try and get help um, it'll be labeled as weak or broken or something like that which doesn't help when you're already feeling weak and broken so um Bull, thank you very much for for coming and, and meeting with me, and uh, you know we've known each other for a long time, yeah, quite a few years. And um, you know, I I would like to kind of get a, a sense of really your background, what kind of led you in into the fire service, and really, well, let's start off with uh, where where you grew up. Uh, here in Central Florida, I was born at what was called Florida Sanitarium Hospital. I think it's, I think it's Florida Hospital now over off Rollins. Hmm. But yeah. it was a, a different building in Orlando, but it's the same, same hospital. Born there, 
grew up first few years on South Street, which is not a well great area now. We lived above a, a appliance store. Then my uh, dad got a better job and we moved out to Pine Hills and we lived behind the prison farm that used to be there. You'd hear the alarms going off every night, <laughs> I remember that. And then uh, got a better job and we ended up moving over to Maitland um, back when it was all dirt roads. That's where I mainly from probably sixth, seventh grade to high school. Where where did you go to high school at? Bishop Moore. Okay. Bishop Moore. Yeah. And then I ended up going out to college to play football in Yankton, South Dakota. Wow. I just I wanted to get out of Florida. <laughs> so I'm guessing you played football in, in yeah. high school. Yeah. And I'm guessing did some weightlifting. Yeah, about my junior year, we got introduced to weightlifting. Back then, it wasn't very big at all. I think they had a universal machine was all. Well, that's all they had. And the little, uh, they had a 15 by 15, like, bunker at Bishop Moore then. We we had a practice field, didn't have a stadium then, any of that. And uh, got turned on to it then, really liked um I don't know if you want to say the pain that it brought, but it got me out of a lot of stuff I had gone through. And when I'd get in the gym, I'd just get lost. And then I did a report on bodybuilding my senior, junior year in high school, which led me to Orange Avenue Gym, which back then it was full-blown uh, bodybuilders, bikers, and professional wrestlers. And when I walked in there, I was 115 pounds and these guys were huge. They had a, a boxing uh, setup in the back. Some of the guys got mad at each other. So I'm wondering, were you, were you working out there same time as uh, Rick Segrist? That's how I got introduced to the fire department <clears throat> between uh, Mike Kelly and Rick Segrist. Um, I was bouncing and doing bodyguard work at the time at night and then doing construction during the day. And I had been going to Orange Avenue Gym uh, since I got back from South Dakota and uh, ran into him one day, got to be friends, and they talked me into going to the academy. They said, you'd be great at this. And uh, that's how I got introduced to it, really. You know, I used to see the fire trucks, and, but never think about it. I, I, uh, my, my goal was to play football. That didn't work out because of injuries uh, during tryouts with the pros. And then uh, my goal was to be an undercover uh, law enforcement. And then Rick and them grabbed me. <laughs> so... What did uh, what did your mom and dad do for for work when you were growing up? Uh, my dad never had a college education, so he was more of a bookkeeper than an accountant. And uh, I think his last job that stuck with him was in the brewery in Orlando. There was a beer manufacturer down there, 
and that was his main job. And then my mom ended up being a uh, working as a cook in the schools, and then became supervisor. So she was like the main breadwinner at the house. You mentioned that you would get in into the weight room and just kind of lose yourself. Um, can you talk a little bit about you know, maybe your experiences growing up, kind of things that shaped you? Um, um, uh, truthfully, when I look back at it, and I, I, uh, I really lived mainly in a dream world up until about 40. Until about 40, and um, that's when I went to get some help that I thought was more alcoholism. Driving back from 9-11 was when I said I'd had enough of everything from years of stuff. Not really the calls in the fire service. Yeah, they haunted me, but I think it was more of the trauma in the childhood that I didn't realize was trauma. You know, it kind of formed me to think I was less than and not worse shit. And, uh, you know, started drinking when I became a fireman. Nah, actually a little bit before I became a fireman. Take that back. And But it got worse in the fire department. And uh, went to treatment for alcoholism. And within two to three weeks, um, I guess my actions and words spoke louder than anything else. And the person that ran it said, uh, she called me in her office, she goes, you may be an alcoholic bull, but you're damn sure suffering from severe fucking trauma exposure throughout your life. And we think that's the problem. And I laughed. I said, I, I don't have any trauma exposure. I said, that's, that's what happens to soldiers. And she goes, no. She goes, we're finding out for these last 15, 20 years, it's high in the fire service because of years and years and years of doing it and the people that become first responders usually have there's a certain percentage said usually have some kind of trauma never dealt with during their life and they get into this kind of uh, profession because of that trauma which I, I never knew that i thought i just got into it because i thought it was cool you know, mm -hmm. but uh, through that, um, through uh, the treatment there, when I finally gave into it or surrendered, as you would say, uh, I had to look back on a lot of shit that I had stuffed that uh, I thought was normal, you know. Grew up Catholic. Um, Still, still love the church. Don't, don't go as much as I should. But, uh, you know, I was uh, raped, sexually abused, whatever you want to call it, three or four different times. And what happened was I had stuffed it so much that, because uh, you can't talk to your parents about it because they're the ones sending you to the priest to stay. And uh, actually, I had pretty much dealt with all that pretty good until, uh, until I think I was home from college and the one priest got brought up in charges by 12 other of the high school kids. 
and she brought the paper in to me and said, can you believe this? This is a great guy. This is happening to him. And I couldn't answer. She, to the day she died, she never knew. Yeah. Couldn't tell her, you know? And, uh, and treatment, they had to do hypnotherapy or something where they put you almost out to get you to start talking. And most, uh, three of the times I couldn't get through them, even being out, I would get to a certain point and one of them, you know, still vivid where I can remember looking out like stained glass windows, it's kind of dark around you. And I feel this guy breathing on my back and then I just go blank. And, um, through, you know, years of talking to therapists, they said that, uh, in fact, the one said she hopes I never remember it because it could be bad. But they said growing up that way, you know, it started young, preteens, that, um, that your body learns to, to stuff these things away that you may never get to the root of why you're acting like you are until you go through something like this. That's why people drink, drug, and they don't, they don't really know why they're doing it, she says, you know? Yeah. But through that, and then, um, uh, once, uh, fuck, once, uh, I got jumped by some guys, I think I was 12, and tied up in an old abandoned building. And everything goes blank after that, still to this day. But I remember some guys coming in that I knew that lived in the area that were older than me. Back then, Maitland was just woods, a lot of rednecks. It was nothing, you know. There was Eatonville, and there was Maitland, and there was woods. Um, so it was it was pretty rough. Um, some guys came in and caused some ruckus and got me out. You know, I was in there. And then uh, I can remember... Uh, I went to work, I went to work at 14 or 15 on, in the summers in a steel yard in Apopka. And the days I wouldn't work there, I worked at Smith Lumber. These guys were pretty rich in town, good family. So they took me on and we worked on what was called the truss yard where you build the trusses for houses. Yeah. And back then, when we transported the trusses on the back of these flatbeds, someone rode on the back and the trusses with uh, wood poles and you push the power lines out of the way where you're going down some of these roads transport. And I was young enough, like I said, probably somewhere between 14 and 16, it was before college. And, um, and never been in any real physical confrontation. You know, back then you didn't have the internet, so you didn't talk shit, yeah. you know? You didn't talk back to your parents. You didn't talk back to anybody that was older because you get your ass beat. <laughs> and um, we, this guy that was driving the truck, Wayne, he was probably in his 30s or 40s, a biker, but real nice guy. And um, we're going through these orange groves, Back then, by Old Winter Park Hospital, where 
back where they're all subdivisions now, but they were all orange groves and woods then, and somebody was building a house way back in the middle. Come pulling in and pushing tree branches out of the way, and you know, they're a large truck. They're, what, 30 foot bed or whatever. And all of a sudden it comes to the stop and I hear this ungodly screaming. So I'm climbing to get out of the, out of the, uh, the trusses and jump back, jump down. And I look and I'm like in shock, you know, 511, probably 90 something pounds. And there's these, what looked like then five or six huge construction workers. And one guy was kicking Wayne in the face in the dirt. And another guy was hitting him with a board. So I ran to grab him and two guys grabbed me and picked me up. Put me up against the truck and said, if you do anything, we'll kill you right fucking here with him. And truth is, I was shitting my pants because I didn't know what was going on. Next thing I know, in my memory, is they're done. He's laying there all crumpled up. Um... The way I see it now, you know, part of his face was gone, but it was just from being beaten. And I kind of picked them up. I didn't know what to do and started walking. I couldn't drive. So I started walking back. These guys are laughing, walking off, and I'm just trying to figure out what I just went through. And I'm trying to get him out of there. And what happened is that when I came out of the Orange Grove, the hospital was right there across the street. So a lady stopped the car and helped me get him into the hospital. And I'm sitting there and she's asking me, man, are you, are you okay, kid? You know, all this. She's worried about me. And I said, I think so. I just don't know where I am or how to get home. And um, she actually worked at the high school I ended up going to. So she knew, I think, my parents or someone in the neighborhood. So they got me a ride to come back. So this was like back to back to back, you know, every few years, something. And, uh, and I had forgotten really about a lot of the stuff. And so by the time I, uh, got into high school, um, I had never played football, played baseball and, and, uh, basketball back then. But as soon as, uh, as I got in the weight room, it was like, not game on, but things were different. It was like I could get bigger and I could get stronger. This will never happen again. And then what was sad was on the football field, I took out a lot of aggression. So I was, uh, you know, I, I made, did well in football only because you could hit people. And that's what got me into college to play. And then I had a tryout of, with the Jets, the Giants, and the Patriots. And uh, South Dakota, snow on the ground. Me being from Florida, still hadn't learned to stretch good enough and I was running the 40 and ripped my hamstring and stomp muscle. Never heard from them again. Wow. Yeah, and that's how I ended up back here. You get on with Orange County, like after meeting Mike Kelly and, and Rick Segrist, and I, I'm guessing at that time when you were working out at uh, the the gym, what said Orange Avenue? Yeah, it was called Orange Avenue Gym back then. It was a pit. In fact, 
they weren't going to let me train there because I was just a little shit. So over in the corner of the gym, they had those pre-made barbells that you see in the gym that go from like 10 pounds to 100 pounds. And they got an old bench and put it over there and said, when you can get through the whole stack and squat and bench the 100 pounds or 110, whatever it is, you can come out here and work out with the rest of us. So that was one of those goals I had, and I'd be in there every day. That's pretty freaking cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool now, but at the time, you were embarrassed <laughs> to walk in there. Yeah. So you get you get on with Orange County in '85. Yeah. And I'm. Um, so, what what was your first fire station that you got assigned to? Well, I was supposed to be at 41 with Bill Colby. I think I worked three shifts there. And back then, a senior guy, if he wanted to be at that station, he could just take it, and you'd have to go fill in where he was. So Wally Leach, remember Wally wanted to be at 41, and he was at 71. So I ended up going out there to 71, which... Ended up being good. I was there about a year, year and a half. And uh, Herbie Callaway was my lieutenant. Malcolm Works, the engineer. The old man, Angel Gonzalez, Dave Harper, all those guys. So it was a good crew. Yeah. And we were playing basketball one day. And I knocked, is it Malcolm Works or John, John Tom Cheston? One or both. I think it was Tom Cheston ended up knocking out in the basketball game. On accident. And someone else got hurt. And that's when Harper said, man, you play basketball like a bull. And it stuck from that day forward. <laughs> My mom used to get mad when she called the station. She'd ask for Tom Hill. Um, I don't know who Tom Hill is. <laughs> okay, is Bull there? Oh, yeah, he's right over here. She goes, I gave you a name. <laughs> so... <laughs> oh. so. Tell me about how you ended up being one of the founding members of uh, Squad One. Well, I had a lot of uh, construction work from my early teens um, to being a fireman. I mean, from ninth grade, eighth grade, I was either doing work in the steel yard or construction at the lumber mill. Um, had worked on vehicles for a while. That's how you grew up then, you know, doing that stuff. You didn't, you didn't work in stores or computer shops or whatever. You had to do manual labor. And when they came out with what they were doing, um, I put in for it. And Charlie Walsh, I think it was Buffy Green, and then would ride up as battalion chiefs. And they came over to interview me one day at 71. And at that time, you know, I was in real good, lot real good shape then bigger um and they said man we'd like to see if you can be on the squad with us and even though i only had three years on at the time so what ended up happening was um i got picked to be on the squad as one of the three firefighters and got moved to 51 and that's where the whole program started we were there probably two or three years if that long and then everything got moved to 50 
but uh man for those first five or six years every shift and probably one or two days a week all we did was train 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 and then uh hurricane hugo came 89 and uh, i had relatives a girl i was married to uh getting married to actually we were married at the time um just got married the her relatives all lived there in somerville charleston so i took time off to go up there took generators and all that and found out that they were looking for firefighters and that's when we made our first uh trt team or whatever it's called now and they sent 14 guys to somerville and we actually ran the department for 14 days they sent all their guys home but one who knew the routes and their guys went home because it was devastated up there it was bad yeah. and um we manned all the stations with one of their guys for i think it was close to 14 days wow. and ran all their calls did everything and then came back and that's when the squad started taking off so at that time what kind of what kind of training did you guys do because hmm. it wasn't really the there wasn't the training you had now there was it was grassroots i guess you know when it got to the hazmat the uh chemical stuff a lot of that we went through uh um is it homeland security it was it was military that taught us that stuff um 51 used to have the old chemical truck right and i knew nothing about hazmat and uh we we had some old shit that I don't even think worked very well. <laughs> so they ended up, you know, changing that out. But uh, Steve Kidd was, you know, very good with the vehicle extrication, well known around the country. Did a lot of that. Um, I can't even remember now who was doing our rope training, but that was that was something else. Starting to to uh, to do high level rescue because I wasn't used to it that. You know, I thought I was always scared of heights, but I found out it wasn't the height that I was more scared about falling. <laughs> so another story to go with that, I said, well, to overcome that, I have to bungee jump. So I went with Joe Bob Hernandez one day, like an idiot, and went out <laughs> to Kissimmee when they first started this. And I'm watching people and they're screaming and having a good time and I'm shaking. You know, I'm 220 pounds muscle. And they're laughing at me, and I'm thinking, I, I, I can't do this. But I, I know I have to overcome the fear. So I get on the scale, and for some reason it says 200 or 205. And I'm going, man, I weigh more than that. So they take you up on this crane, and they lift it 150 feet or whatever, and they Velcro these rubber bands to you. They look like rubber bands. That's all. It's not like a harness and everything. It's Velcro to my ankles. And uh, the guy said, all right, I'm going to count to three and you're going to jump. And he goes, one, two. And I said, fuck you, I'm not going. And I grabbed him. And he goes, man, you better let go of me now. He goes, we, we won't have this. And I said, well, what do I got to do? He goes, just jump. David, I jumped and they had a water pit to protect you at the bottom. My head went in the water. <laughs> It was horrible. 
But that's when I knew the scale was off. <laughs> supposedly they weigh you and then that's the amount of cord they put on you. So you'll sprain. Fuck me. But uh, <laughs> I tell you from that point on, hook me up to a rope and go over the edge. It didn't bother me anymore. Yeah. You know, because you had control. Right. You had control. That was great. Then we started caving um, stuff. Um, I excel pretty good at everything except for the diving. And when I dive, uh, man, I get massive headaches and went to the doctors for that and found out that I had like 70% blockage in one ear and 20 in the other. So to clear was at 10 feet, you clear. And then at 15, 20, you clear, could never clear. And, uh, so I was allowed to still be on the truck, even though if it was dive, I was mainly just doing the accessory stuff. Thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> You're one of the founding members of Squad One. Yeah. And then at some point, you, you moved out of Station 50. And where, where did you go from there? Okay, so what happened was, uh, before I moved out of Station 50, um, my drinking had escalated. I can honestly say I never drank on duty. But I can't really, uh, I think it was after my divorce. Um, you know, divorce just... The last thing I wanted was to ever get a divorce. But, you know, I was a piece of shit. I'd either work or work at a side job. I hired out of doing cowboy stuff. Or I did construction with another firefighter almost every day. So I was gone all the time. And um, it was common that we drank in both jobs. Um, never drank on duty, but it got to the point where, uh, you know, I'd stay out. And I might be drinking at three or four in the morning and go to shift. So she had had enough. And uh, right before nine, before nine eleven, no, yes, it was probably a year or so before nine eleven. Trying to get this straight now, was when I got hit by lightning on duty. I don't know if you ever knew about no, that. No, I didn't know about that. Yeah, um, we're on a dive scene, and that's back when the, the sheriff's helicopter would fly. Yeah. You know, what's funny is I met Travis Brown the other day to pick up his helmet shield and a pass tag to go on the new pack, um, the honor pack for survivors, guys that are fighting cancer. I can't wait to get that thing going. So... He remembered it. He brought it up when we were at lunch. He was on another shift. And um, so what happened was we were on a dive and uh, the sheriff's helicopter was somewhere in the air and they said everyone needs to get out of the water because of uh, lightning in the area. So we were in Pine Hills and we had gone uh, from there to Station 30 to fill up. And uh, looking down the road, you could see just lightning popping everywhere. And I think it was, uh, it was either a tree or it actually hit the telephone pole a good ways down the road. And you could see it chase it. 
you know, and it hit so much that probably 100 feet in front of us, a tree branch came out in the water, big round one, and uh, cars were swerving to get around it. So Charlie said, get your ass out there and move the tree branch. And uh, not thinking, I ran out there, grabbed the branch, went to move it, and that's the last thing I remember. And what happened was Alan Gardner ran out and got me after it, pulled me back, and Thomas, Tom Ruffin was crying. And he goes, are you alive? And I said, yeah, what just happened? He said, I think he got hit by lightning. <laughs> what they found out was they heard the, either they heard a boom and saw just a big ball of light or vice versa. I don't remember it. I just remember shaking. And uh, <laughs> supposedly... When I grabbed the branch, the fat end of it hit a guard pole, uh, uh, the guard rail. The other part was in water. So when they got me back to the station, now we didn't even go to the hospital. We went back to the station. And I said, I got to use the bathroom. When I went in there, I found I had to wet my pants, everything else. And I had uh, like those burn welts on my hands and my feet. So I went out there to tell them, and then they took me to the hospital. And uh, the doctors there, actually one of them prayed over me in the hospital. And the other one was saying, well, yeah, first degree block. Looks like you're getting secondary block. We're going to put you on some medications. And usually people don't, I don't see people living from this. So we don't know what's going to happen. That's basically what they said. They said for for the years to come, you might have problems. So I was out on light duty for a while. And, uh, and, uh, I think that's when 9-11 came. So I go to treatment and, uh, everything changed after that. And then one of the things I forgot, uh, I didn't forget. I need to mention it too, was that, you know, you asked me about my dad was that I'd never seen my dad sober in his whole life. So if you've ever grown up with an alcoholic and you look back on it, you learn certain traits. Like I learned to duck all the time. If there was a loud noise, I'd duck. I'd turn my head, this and that, because his hand was always swinging, you know? And I thought it was just me being fearful growing up, but it was, from what I was told, a reaction to, and there was, he tried to kill me twice, and the last time uh, was one of the worst was when I was in high school, uh, uh, I had taken a, well, I didn't really take her out on a date, her mom took us out on a date, went out with a girl, her mom brings us home, and I invite them both to come in. And my dad is shit-faced, sitting in his chair, like I walk in the door, he's over there, and I'm like, ah, oh, fuck. And my mom's sitting on the couch, just kind of shaking her head. And so I introduced him, and he said something really smart-ass. And uh, I said, well, we're going to go. So I walked him out and apologized, walked back in. And I don't know what I said, but it pissed him off enough to start his yelling and swinging. So I said, I'm leaving, and I left. So I get down to the end of the street, and now I'm crying. 
thinking, where the fuck am I going to go? You know, you're, I'm not driving yet, so I must have been 15. I don't know. Maybe I was 16 and I wasn't allowed to have a license. But I get back in, I walk in, I walk down the hall, go in the bathroom, and next thing I know, the door comes off the hinges, and he grabs me by the neck, and he said, if I could, I would fucking kill you. And I can remember saying, I wish you would. Just, just do it. And uh, he just stormed off. And I can remember walking out to the living room, and Mom's still sitting there. And I'm thinking, what the fuck is going on in this house, you know? But through the treatment, you know, uh, I got to look at all this. When I got back from all of that, um, I went on light duty. And um, they were actually going to fire me because, A, I had gone to 9-11 thinking I had, had got it okayed. I was told it was okayed. In fact one of the other lieutenants that was going to go and he said he had seven guys that were going to go too were going to meet me somewhere along the way up there well i get to new jersey and i get a phone call that i'm awol so that was part of the whole 9-11 experience that i got to the point where i didn't give a fuck after that so when i drive home do the treatment go in to get uh, fired and it's Chief Lyons um, Rita Rita Brown whatever her name was and a couple other people when they fire you and all of a sudden uh, Jerry Polk walks in the union president I said what are you doing here he goes for you I said what's going on he goes I only show up when people get fired he goes you aren't allowed to go he goes, what are you going to say? I said, well, I'm going to fucking tell him the truth. I can't lie anymore, you know. I'm, I'm, a, I'm out of treatment. I'm sober. I'm not allowed to lie. I don't want to go back to drinking. So I go in, and they're giving me all the rights. And then I can remember, you know, part of it lying saying, you know, you're the best fireman that I know of in my career. Except you've really fucked up now. He goes, there's nothing else we can do. And it was weird because all of a sudden Jerry goes, Chief, just a minute. Can he have a minute just to talk? And he goes, yeah. So they turn off the tape recorder. Because I guess they have to record everything. And he said, Bull, just go ahead. And I can, part of it that I remember is telling them that, that I've been an alcoholic this whole time. Been drunk. And, you know, I'm, I'm ashamed of what I've done with the department and then supposedly went on for five minutes. I don't know what happened, but it <coughs> felt like something moved in that room. He turns back on the recorder and he says, okay, so where would you like to be stationed at when we leave here today? And I looked at Jerry and he goes, I said, uh, can I go back to the squad? And he goes, do you really want to go back there or would you like to? And then he said, how about you drive Chief Growley around for a month or two? And then we'll figure it out. I walked out of there. I look at Jerry and he goes, well, I don't know what the hell just happened in there, but whatever you said worked. I said, is this done? I got my job. And he goes, 
not only that, you're driving the chief around. Because just be happy, it's over and it's done. It was amazing. And I think for me, the best part was I didn't make up any fucking story. I told the truth. And uh, drove Chief Rally around, did a lot of uh, work, started that um, air canister campaign, uh, campaign where I went to every station and uh, set up the, the air bottle fills. We didn't have it then. Um, came up with a, came up, welded a device for the, uh, uh, the, not the Indian packs, but the, uh, the floating porta tanks. So I made, uh, 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 carts with, with, uh, the big heavy duty tires that welded and folded up, went on all the tankers so you could take them. Got to do a lot of those projects. And then, uh, I was at a uh, training class in Brian Morrow. Uh, we had known each other, you know, through through years of running calls and squad we run with 70. He asked me, he goes, well, I'm out at 28. He said, I'd love for you to be my fireman. You take a break from the squad. Take a break from 50. You've been there almost 18 years. You need a break. And I couldn't think of going anywhere else, you know. And he goes... It's a shithole here. You'll love it. You get a lot of fires. And I thought, 28? No one's ever heard of 28, you know? Sure enough, man, that place, we ran our asses off. It was like a small Station 50, you know? But I tell you the truth, Dave, I drove my truck up to the trailer in the overhang, which was 28, and I got out of my truck, and walking across the parking lot to the trailer... It was like, I can breathe. And there, I didn't feel any stress at all. Like, I'd go into 50 and I'd be a ball of knots. And I never realized it during those times there. But as soon as I walked up to 28, it was like, it's, I'm, at, I'm living again. And so being on, you know, a normal engine crew was just fantastic. Especially... Being on there after having trained as much as I had, you know, you're kind of ahead of the game on a lot of things. So it made yeah. it nice. So that's how I ended up at 28. And you were at 28 for for how long? Oh, probably eight. Eight years. I was at 26. Seven years. Something like that. And I was there enough to where my body was, uh, well, from the lightning strike. Four years after the lightning strike, I'm doing that P90X program. I'm trying to do that fucking yoga every Thursday. And I can bend one way, but I can't bend the other. And to find out this through that yoga, I don't know. I knew my back had really started bothering me. So uh, I was squatting one day at the gym. And the owner was spotting me, and he all of a sudden my my back and hip gave out, and I just collapsed. And he said, uh, "I'm taking you right now to his chiropractor, where they do X-rays and everything." And he says, "While you're squatting, I could tell that one hip was higher than the other." So through that, they found <laughs> that my back had been shattered, and chiropractor showed me the x-rays he said it looks like you have an 80 year old back 
your lower back. And it's got a C in it. And I said, uh, I've never been in an accident. I said, the worst accident I've been on was when I got thrown off a horse and he ran over me. He goes, well, that wouldn't have caused this. And what they came to figure is that through the lightning strike, it had shattered and fused it because he said your lower back is fused too. So it explains why every time I try to go to a chiropractor, it, it would be severe pain if they tried to stretch or pop it. They couldn't do anything. And I couldn't tell them what happened. It was through that I found that. So my back had been bothering me. And uh, at 28, my knees got worse and worse. I don't know if it's all of the accumulation of football, construction, cowboy, and this, or getting in and out of the fire truck, but uh, I had had two knee surgeries, the meniscus repairs, and they had started putting the, the rooster collagen or whatever in your knees back then. And it, uh, it got to so bad to where I had to wear knee braces under my bunker gear that uh, I asked for light duty. So that's how I ended up at the Fitbit. And at the Fitbit, on those eight hours, people started coming in and asking me to train them. And then that turned into them asking me if I wanted to start a program down there, which went from a 20 by 20 area we were given to really getting 2,000 square feet. You saw that by the time we left. Mm -hmm. That was probably the hardest job in the whole fire department I had at the time. Trying to convince people we needed it. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was awesome. Oh, it 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 turned out to be to me it was safe ground for anybody. If you were a chief or a firefighter, you know, they had had me write up like a mission statement. It was that you leave your badge at the door. When you come in here, this is common ground for everyone. And I tell you what, I made a lot of good friends there. I saw people that would never even talk to each other start hanging out there and training together yeah. and it became it became something that i was really proud of and then to have rick um he came to me one day and asked me about can we do something for i think it was the heart and lung or the heart association to raise money and he said you think we'd come up with a crossfit thing and that's when me and dave coughlin put together that 343 yeah which turned out to be a really good event. Yeah. Yeah, that's... That's so freaking cool, man. Yeah, turned out good. Yeah. And that's when I had... Uh, I ended up... That's how I met Shaky. You know, he was on... I think they had three squads by then. Yeah, no, they did. It. He was on squad four... At yeah, a, at a 42. 42. And we didn't really get along because he was pissed. Uh, a lot, a few of the squad guys weren't happy that I left the squad and went there. And Shaky was one of the ones that would, would be, would voice it. And he'd say, you know, you're wasting all your talent down in this fucking hole in the wall. And I said, this is the best hole in the wall there is in the county you need to bring your fat ass down here and uh we'd go back and forth you know and then we started talking every now and then more because he was in training and uh 
came to me one day, and I, I remember to this, that uh, he says, he walks in, he goes, hey, Bull, I need your help. And I said, man, you look great. What have you lost? He says, 30 pounds. I said, well, whatever you're doing, it's working, man. He goes, I'm dying. I've got cancer, and I want you to help me. And I started bawling. I said, I don't know what to do. I can't relate. I talked about my dad. I don't even talk about that. I had a total reversal about him in treatment. Well, I'm finally honest. Remember how I told you we didn't talk bad about our parents? Never once did I back talk to him. I broke his ribs one time. And I was mad at him, but it made it look like I was hugging him. And I busted the shit out of his ribs. But other than that, I would never back talk or anything. Because we just didn't do it. And when you went to talk to somebody about it, you didn't talk bad about your parents. But I finally had to be honest about it in treatment. And let me tell you something, man. That's why I love the steps so much. Is that they will position you in a way that if you don't get relief, you're not being honest. Yeah. And that's why a lot of guys in AA still have to go to me, still have to have problems drinking. It was like when this happened to me, God, however you want to look at it, removed the desire to drink. Removed it. 20 years not wanting to. Even with all this pain. That's crazy. Yeah. And that's why I believe with my trauma exposure, you know, when I start talking to people, uh, experts, whatever you want to call them, these days, and tell them a little about this, they're going, you're, you're still suffering from it. You know, with that kind of being raped and that, and I said, I don't, I don't, I don't suffer from it. Oh, the steps. And I said, listen, aren't we, isn't the whole goal to find a relationship with a power greater than yourself that you can trust every day? It's either that, or I'm going to have to go see a doctor every day, or I'm going to have to take a medication. It's not that it's miraculous, it's that I think that's what we were created to do. And to be able to talk to someone else. I my idea is, you know, we talk about God and the Bible, all this. You look at, you really study on your own, if you want to. Like, let's say the New Testament, since they say that Christ wiped out the Old Testament. You know, I guess the New Testament's the new whatever. But you take those guys... That either Christ used or that God used in the Old Testament. Every one of those motherfuckers was a whore or a murderer or a drunkard. And what did they do when they got their lives turned around? They took care of people. They gave of themselves. And I think that's one of our missing things is that we think we can, we can take the past that we were so bad in and hide it. Where someone could take what you went through and you could share it however you have to share it like I do with my addiction and and uh, and stuff and they can go fuck I'm right there where they are how, how else do they connect with you you know and yeah. we don't do it yeah and I think that's what the fire department's missing much less everyone else yeah. and when I start I started an AA program it was called Heroes Anonymous because I hated I hate the word heroes, and uh, it was on the wellness site for 
10, 16 years. So when guys would have problems, they'd either reach out to me or a chief or a lieutenant would send me someone. I forgot about that too. Hmm. Hmm. So you were talking about shaky oh. and when, um, it's funny cause, uh, See, I didn't know him very well because being at the Fit Pit, being at 28, and everyone, what a great guy, what a funny guy, what a fuck up, what this and that. I never knew, I never got to experience that part of shaking. Yeah. I got to experience a guy that was scared to death and would do anything to stay alive. I got to know the guy that would fucking cry on my shoulder. I mean, it changed me from not liking them, being an acquaintance, to falling in love with them. I mean, fuck, I'd sleep with him during the day when I was his last few days. I'd feed him, we'll shower him. It's like, fucking don't go. And then come back and take care of JP a little bit was just, that's, that's what, that really got me. And I realized all a lot of mistakes I had made over when Todd and Mark got killed. I don't know if you know about that. Yeah. Well, I was floated out there that day. Oh, I didn't know that. I called in sick so I could drink. Oh, no shit. I didn't know about it. Called in sick so I could go to work. Cowboy or construction. And I just wanted to get drunk. And I came home. I had a beeper then, not, and it kept going off. I'm like, what the fuck? And so I threw it in the truck, like usual, drove home, and my neighbors at the time, 60s or 70s, come running over. He goes, oh, thank God. And I said, what's the matter? He goes, I thought it might have been you, the way they were talking, but two Orange County firefighters didn't want to tell me. I fucking broke down. I went to shift the next day. Herbie hugs me. He goes, you don't know how fucking lucky you are. And I said, what? He goes, you were on the float boat. Because remember, they moved everyone around. Yeah. And John Garrett got moved to Italian. Uh, was it Todd? Todd got moved up to Lieutenant Mark. And then they floated in. The other guy that came on with me, uh, the Spaz, that got out. He came on with me. He was one of the rookie floaters. So I went to that funeral and I broke down in that funeral. And I swore when I got out of there, I would never go to another fire department funeral. I felt like I had lost a piece of that toughness. If I could cry, I didn't go, my best friends, I didn't go to Ganley. I didn't go to Highsmith, I didn't go to Priester, all the guys I worked with at 50, I didn't go to him. Until I went to Delmas. And then when I started taking care of Shaky, <clears throat> I had a garage set up like a gym. I started pulling out all, I had 23 pictures posted on my gym wall. All the guys were dead. But I pulled them out and man, it was weird, Dave. I started seeing them again, Delma and Ganley and Priester happy. It was like we got this fear that well, I don't want to see him this way. I always, rem well, I remembered him that way because I stuffed them away, and when I pulled them out, that was when it changed. 
But yeah, I floated out that day. Floated out that day. So when you think about, I don't talk about it a lot, but you think about first the father trying to kill you and the rapes, and then thank God I was a drunk. Or you, I don't know if what would have happened that day. I feel bad because someone else died, but you know, I don't know what was supposed to happen, but I tell you that haunted me forever. And that could have been some of the cause. I found out recently, I, like I'll, before I send guys to treatment centers, I'll go check them out. Um, before I tell them to do tests uh, like EMDR and stuff, I'll do it. Um, I'm doing one now called ISIS, where they put the electrodes on your brain. And it can go anywhere from three treatments to 20. But I can only get down there for like a couple treatments at a time. And what it does is, I don't know the whole thing. But the way I take it is that it opens up, like a stroke patient like myself, it, like this side. I have to tell my hand to move. It doesn't just move like this. If I go to pick something up, I knock it over. It opens up those pathways again. So guys can not only remember events, but be able to talk about them honestly. So treatment will work. And I tell you, I've only done one. And for the first week, I slept great. It was, I didn't know anything was happening. You don't <clears> feel it. But I'm supposed to go down the week I get back from Joe's for two more. Yeah, I I made contact with, with you. Yeah. Um... So I'll be interviewing him sometime in the near future. Good. I really want to go through that and have that as a resource because the only people I know using it are, are uh, Miami Dade, Miami Dade, Miami, some some Palm Beach guys, but I don't think it's covered by insurance. This whole thing because it's it's something the military. I think he said is only used until his brother. I think invented it. So. Mm. Uh, talking about, about shaky. yeah talking about shaky you know when all that when when he was diagnosed it was like when i first started really getting close to him um you know i i became chief of special operations mm. and my office was down there at training and you know, whenever the, the squad guys would come down to do their training, um, you know, they'd always come into my office and we'd talk and stuff. And uh, this one day, Shaky was riding up as lieutenant and him and some of the other guys came in my office and shut the door. And, you know, as most of those guys do, but give you a hard time, screw with you a little bit. And... Uh, I was really, really stressed out that day. Like, I remember um, those days. Yeah, you know, I was going through my divorce and and uh, just really on edge. And <laughs> this is shaky. He's like, does somebody need a hug? And I'm like, man, you need to back the fuck up. 
And he pulls his shirt up, ties it in a knot. Yes. And takes one of the markers off of my whiteboard and draws a face on his belly with lips around his belly button. And he was like, all right, I guess I'm going to have to give you a kiss. And that's shaky. Oh my gosh, man. And he wouldn't stop. And so I, start, I started laughing and I'm like, God. and, uh, I, I'm like, dude, get out of here, man. Please leave. <laughs> but it was shortly after that, like he called out sick. He was talking like, you know, I talked to him on the phone and He's like, man, I think I got an ulcer. I got, you know, all this stuff going on. And then, you know, he was still going to work. Like, yeah. in massive pain, you know? And, oh, yeah. And then, uh, and then they, they figured out what it was. And, like, man. You know, you just... It's like such an amazing guy, and to meet his family, to you know, know his wife and his daughters, and just how they looked at him, and you know how much they loved him. And then you know, I went and spent time with him at his house, and just you know, it's just like I. I'm grateful to you for all that you did for him because what you did is, is like took some strength that most people don't have. Like I, I, I didn't want to do it. I trust me. There were days I didn't want to go. And then I got him to come back to work at training. Remember he come back and work mm -hmm. in the office. I set up a cot. So, when he'd feel bad, he'd come in the office, I'd close the door, lock it, turn off the lights, and he'd sleep. So I'll cover for you. You know, just so you can keep working. You spent a lot of time with Shaky. Yeah. And you spent a lot of time with JP. And Not as much JP, I think, because I was just overwhelmed with Shaky. And my mom was dying. So at lunchtime, I'd go stay at the place my mom was in and then take Shaky home when I had to or go to his house. And JP, you know, got the lesser of it, but talked to him on the phone more. I still got some of his messages on the phone. All because of that fuck up I made when Todd and Mark died. I said, I'll never do this again. And then I used the excuse for years, I don't want to see him this way. I don't want to remember him this way. When truthfully, it was fear. That how am I going to react in front of him when I see this guy shriveled up? I didn't ever think about them, what they needed. Until shaky. And that's, I think, why I bust my ass so hard to be there when people need it now. And I remember you raising money, doing the squats. Yeah, seven months. 
And what I don't think a lot of people know is that you were doing that leading up to your double knee replacement. I think I squatted <sighs> how many days in a month? 30, let's say. So five months would be 156, 180. On day 198 was my last squat. Day 199, I went in and had double knee replacement. But the blessing from all that, not knowing this was doing it, was that I recovered in weeks from double knee surgery. They said my legs had been trained so hard day after day after day that taking that break, the muscles were growing, they were getting recouped. And within six weeks, I was driving. Within five, 10 visits at rehab, I had maxed out everything. Even though there was, you know, there was pain in it healing. Because they hadn't taken the... Had they taken the staples out? I think they had to by then. Well, at some point, it was like it shouldn't have been healing that quick. But from doing all those squats, not knowing... That that's prehab, it made me heal so much quicker. I was back to work in what? October was surgery. In January I was back at the Fitbit working <laughs> with double knee replacement. Is that crazy? Yeah, man. But the the yeah, no insanity. One you were bone on bone oh, squatting. I, how much? You, I had worked up to almost 500, 475 pounds. Everything was off a box. It was usually higher than parallel because I couldn't get low enough. I still, even with these, I'll wrap them now and won't go below parallel just because I don't want to push them. But I'm up to 450 again and 500 pound deadlift. I wasn't doing that before the strokes. <laughs> But yeah, no one knew, and that, so I told Shaky was, uh, he'd talk about his pain, and uh, I didn't know how to experience it, so I thought the only thing that hurts is when I squat, and I think I can squat every day, so what I did was start, you know, 10-8-6-4-2, and... At some point, it didn't hurt enough, so I started going heavier, where I'd go threes and twos and ones, and I made sure I did it every single day. There'd be days, and I know you've probably had them, where I'd walk out in the garage, and probably for 30 minutes, I'd fucking cry and talk myself out of squatting. It hurt so bad. I wouldn't even get under the bar. And then it was like, Something went past my head and said, you dumb pussy, just squat and get it over with. This guy's living with it. You're only going to experience for 10, 15, 20 minutes. So I'd start stacking the weight on And before I knew it, I was done. And I, the next day, I wouldn't remember that and fucking struggle with it again. But for 198 days straight. But it went from a guy that could squat 315, 320 to almost 500. Yeah, we did the fundraiser. The, the squatting for Shaky actually was, I was doing it 
to uh, experience just the pain he had. So when he would talk to me about severe pain, I would kind of understand it and have empathy. But when he talked to me about dying, thank God gave me the word, someone did, that I'd say, I have no clue what you're going through there. I couldn't imagine. I couldn't say, I know what you mean. Thank God I never said that. It was like, I don't know what that is, but I'll do whatever I have to. So what happened was we got real close and then they decided to move to Michigan to be near her parents. He bought a car, an old car to work on. Oh, that was sad. Huge house. You know, just an old country home. He had a few acres. They started getting like the mini cows. And uh, I went up there to visit him. And he was actually looking pretty good. You know, he was weaker, but looking pretty good. And then a couple months later, Lisa called and said, I he wants you here tomorrow. Uh, the doctor thinks he's only going to be here for the weekend. So that night I booked a one-way flight up there, got a hotel, flew out the next day, um, and he was actually able to talk. He was a lot thinner, but he could talk to me, uh, couldn't hold down food, he was on a pain pump, and uh, we started sharing about everything, you know. And what was really stood out was not only that he felt like he was letting his family down, he was adamantly embarrassed and ashamed to be a firefighter for the state of Florida. And I still cry over that because a guy that loved the fire service was ashamed to be a fireman because the state of Florida did nothing at that time for firemen that had cancer. Actually, after he passed away within three days, Lisa was cut off the insurance. Yeah. It was there when she got the phone call. That's how bad the state was. And uh, no one, including our IFFF, whatever they called, even though I love those guys, could do anything about it. And they've been fighting it for, supposedly fighting it for over 10 years. So one night, uh, you know, I probably had about three or four good days with him when we talk. I'd take him, I'd uh, help him eat. I wasn't really cleaning him then just doing stuff around there and I told him I said check yeah I'm not gonna stay up here if I had just sitting here all day I said I'll go crazy and I'll drive you crazy and he said well we had that acre out there and I've got all the fence equipment it needs to be the poles going to the ground and six strands of bob wire put up and I said good and uh, started doing that that was like day four and that's a lot of fencing well, the fucking uh, electric pole digger didn't work. So I got a fence pole and a file. A file. Fence pole digger and a file. And I followed dig, file dig. And then it snowed. It got down to the teens the next 10 days. 
<laughs> Bad enough to where I went up there, this Florida guy with a, uh, a sweatshirt, hoodie, and just jeans and stuff. So they went to a uh, Goodwill and got me a couple jackets. <laughs> but what happened was one night, Chick, he said, man, I, you got to make me a promise. He goes, when I pass away, which I will, you'll do something to make a change in Florida. And at that time, I just said, yep, I'll do whatever I can. Not really thinking about it, just appeasing him because he's dying, you know. And then when he got, well, I thought he wasn't able to get up and get around. Um, this is the next day or day after. Uh, one of the daughters, Brittany, said, can you take his gear and start hanging it in the barn so we'd have, like, a memorial? And that's some of the pictures I would share on Facebook. I'm up on the ladder hanging this stuff. And that fucker comes walking out the door while I'm on the ladder hanging his jacket. Already got the helmet. And I hear someone, and I look, and he's sitting in his bathrobe on the stairs in the garage watching me. He goes, that looks good. How are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm fucking doing fine. How are you? And it clicked in my head, and I got down off the ladder, started crying. He goes, you all right? And I said, fuck, I, I'm, I'm horrible. I said, how do you think I feel? I said, I didn't like you, and you didn't like me a year ago, almost two years ago. And I said, I love you now, and I, I can't believe you're gone. And he started bawling. And he got his helmet shield. That's when he gave me his helmet shield. He said, take my helmet shield and just carry it with you everywhere. I never got a helmet shield from anyone. And then, then from that day on, he was better than me. Now, I remember the first time I took him to the bathroom and pulled his pants down. He was trying to fight me. I said, shake it. We both worked on the trail. I do this with the homeless strangers. I don't care if I see your dick or not, you know. <laughs> and you got shit on your ass, so I'm gonna wipe it while I'm here. And he would fight, you know, as best he could, but finally he just laid there and got to take care of him. So I'd come there in the morning, uh, eat breakfast with him, go work, come in at lunch, and usually take a nap in the bed with him go back out and work until dinner until uh, the last day probably uh, two or three days before the last day there were so many people there that there wasn't really room in the house so they had a camper in the backyard I stayed in which had no electricity so, in the snow and the cold, I, I was sleeping in full clothes. <laughs> uh, it was fitting for Shaky. And I remember it was an afternoon, and I was laying back there because I had done with the, with the fence work, and uh, his daughter comes out and says, you got to come in. It's bad. So, for about an hour, we stood around his bed, and uh, it was horrible because... I've watched my father die, and I held my mom's hand while she passed. And she just went, they both just went out. 
I mean, where I could count my mom's breathing from 60 seconds down to 30, down to 10 seconds, then no more breathing. Just, and that guy shake, he fought like a fish out of water, like that guppy breathing, just trying to suck in as much air. And I can remember just, okay, you can't cry, Tom. I got one of the boyfriends, one of the boyfriends, got my hand on Shaky's foot and the rest of the family's around him and then all of a sudden man it's just like done and I can hear it today both of the girls just scream and I had to grab the boys and take them out of the room and then uh, it was it was bad especially watching that happen and so I uh, stayed up there for, like I said, three more days. That's when I learned about the insurance thing, just to help Lisa do whatever I could. Then uh, when I came home, uh, I got the call from JP about that. He was pretty much done doing all of the, you know, he was, his body, JP's body was eating him from the inside out. And within a year, you saw what happened to him. He'd go in and get a transfusion. They'd spin it, I guess put it back in. And instead of being, it was good for a year, it'd be good for eight months, six months. And finally, when it got to be about a month, he said, well, I'm done. And I'm like, <laughs> I wanted so bad to just say, well, I can't do anything, but I couldn't. You know, like I said, I, I have two of JP's messages still on there when he's drugged up, calling for me to come over. And I, I so, Shaky leaves me with make a change. And I got his helmet shield in the dashboard of my truck, or the Jeep, every day, not knowing what that means. And uh, I had made a promise to myself in this Indian about a year before, no, a year after I retired that I would walk the Trail of Tears. I read a book, uh, Walking the Trail of Tears, One Man's Journey. And this Indian in the 70s was the only man at that time that walked the Trail of Tears from Oklahoma back to his home in Alabama. And I read it, and I never knew that history that the U.S. government forced these people out. It would be like a day like today. They're sitting in restaurants, they're sitting everywhere. This is back when they had homes, they were in suits, everything. They came in and forced them out from where they were that day and started them walking. They couldn't go home and change or pack clothes. They left that day. Most left without their families, their kids went one way. It was horrible when you read it. Um, so I got a hold of the author, and I asked him, I said, I'm a white guy, a fireman, and I'd like to walk this. Is it cool? Is it all right? He said, yeah. He said, I think that would be neat, and this is what you do. And uh, we were in contact, and I told JP to lift his spirits. I said, I want you to come out for a day or two. And that was one of his things he wanted to do. So the last day I saw him, was when James Gearing had uh, got the movie uh, 
only the Brave could have flown in from Miami or driven up from Miami before it was released so JB could watch it. And uh, after everyone left, he uh, told me he wouldn't be able to walk the trail. That's pretty much when he said he, he's done. He said, within a month or so, I'm done. And you, what are you going to say, you know? And he said, I want you to do me a favor. And he said, Jamie is helmet shield. He said, I believe if you walk Florida, something big will happen. And for about a month, I couldn't sleep. I'd wake up. The woman I was with at the time, it was driving her crazy. Because she goes, you're, you're too involved with these guys. And I'm going, you don't understand. These people are dying. It was just like that chief I told you about. There was no empathy. I couldn't understand it. And uh, I'd wake up thinking about Ganley and Delma and Priester. And it was like they were saying, it's weird as shit, like, just go out and walk. Just go, you know? So somehow I got the idea of taking my backpack, it was an army backpack, and I put Shaky on it and uh, JP on it and started just walking trails. And one of the guys said, you need to post this and make it public. And it was like squatting for Shaky. I wasn't letting anyone know about it until Dawson DeBozeman said, make it public because people will donate to it. So when uh, somebody called me about walking, and I hadn't decided where yet, uh, I started posting it, and the fire department family started reaching out. Um, who was it? Mark Austin reached out about Ganley and gave me uh, his coat patch, his coat name tag, and I put it on the bottom. I called Marion to get Delma's uh, lieutenant's badge, Gail Walsh. I mean, it, it was like within a month. And then Amanda Marsh called me. She is the widow of Eric Marsh, who was the captain or the job boss of the 19 hotshots that died, Granite Mountain, that the movie was made out of, that I watched with JP. She found out what I was doing. She called me, I remember, sitting in the toilet. She's crying, and she goes, I've never seen anyone honor firemen like this. I said, I'm not honoring. Don't get me wrong, I'm honoring, but I'm just walking. I don't know what else to do. She goes, I want Eric on there. So she sent me, they made 19 patches, and she sent me one of those that I keep wrapped up inside the pouch. And then she sent me another one that uh, I had sewn on leather and put 19 stamps around it to represent all the guys. A guy from, a captain from 9-11 got a hold of me and gave me John Lynch. Supposedly John Lynch, I read up on him, was a uh, probationary firefighter that went into the towers. The only thing they found of him was the helmet and that guy brought me his helmet and I said, I'm not, I'm, I'm not taking the helmet. He said, well, then you're going to take his probationary 
helmet shield and his truck number. That's on there. And then what happened was amazing is that I drive back and forth to Charleston. This is all happening within a two month period. Some firefighters from Savannah reached out and I probably drove past Savannah three times. They had called and said, we want you to pick up some guys. I'd say, okay, I'd be there. And I wouldn't. I'd get too nervous. Because I didn't know what I was getting into. And then finally one time I said, fuck it, I'm gone. So I turned down to the van exit. And couldn't, didn't know where the station was. Couldn't get a hold of the guy. And I said, fuck it, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to turn around so I stopped in a park to take a pee and I look up where I'm peeing and the name of the street is Bull Street and I said okay okay I got you I'm gonna go find it so I stopped at a fire station number three downtown and I parked in the chief spot out back and remember then I had well one no tattoos had long hair beard the retired fireman look and two guys come out and go, man, you can't park here. I said, just give me five minutes. And they're shaking their head because it's downtown. And they're looking at me and I said, it's, it's a good story, but I got to get something out of the truck. And I pulled the backpack out. And they're looking at it. And I said, can I walk in? And they said, well, yeah, come on in. So I said, there's a guy from your station that hit me up on Instagram and texted me, didn't call me, um, or messaged me about coming by. He's got stuff. Um, for me to carry and I told them the story about this and they said well it's none of us I mean they were pretty turned off you know who's this guy going to take some of our stuff and carry it around and so I said his Instagram name is and not one of those sons of bitches did social media <laughs> so they made two or three calls they finally got a hold of the guy and they said yep it's, it's, I don't even remember this guy's name. They said it's upstairs in the office and the cones went off, they got around, they said just wait and I'll be back. Turn around, they come back and they bring me a shirt and a patch. One for Jimmy Perez, uh, a young guy in his 20s, died of cancer, and one for a chief. And uh, while we're there, they start loosening up and this captain, he wasn't a captain, an engineer comes over, Damon Jurgers, and says, hey, why don't we take a picture out front, front of the truck with, uh, with the uh, backpack. I think Bennett had like 10 things on it. And we're all holding up, there's five of us. One's holding the shirt, one's holding the patch, this and that. Took the picture and the guy said, well, we gotta, we gotta get in. And, and Damon's standing off to the side, just watching me. And he goes, bull don't go. And I said, what's the matter? He goes, fuck it, I don't want to do this, but I, I think I got to. So he went on the truck, got his helmet, flipped it over, and took this pass tag off of it and started crying. He said, I'm going to give you Mike Curry. I said, who's Mike? And he pointed at the wall, and I see they have, like, a assignment board. And Mike Curry and end date, which was only then, maybe a year ago, and he goes, Mike Curry is a guy I grew up with, kind of like BJ with you, I guess. And he died not long ago. 
And I said, that's his pass tag. He goes, I took it off his helmet the day he died, and I haven't taken it off mine until now. And I said, I'm crying. I said, I can't take that. He goes, Mike would want to walk with you, and I believe you're doing a good thing. So that's how I got to Mike Curry, right? Well, what happened was, I didn't know this until I met Mike Small, is that he was, you know, the Sunday school teacher, he was a baseball coach, he was one of those all-around guys, and he was the avid diver. Well, Savannah had that, uh, that ferry accident a few years ago where 41 people went in the water. The dock collapsed. He was the first one in. They got all 41 people out. And after they got everyone out, the chief said, will you put your scuba gear on and check for more? And he was putting the scuba gear on and collapsed right there. Massive heart attack. I think it was in his late 30s. So when he told me that story, I'm like, holy shit, this is another, this ain't just, this is another big thing that I'm getting. Um, the Green Hills gave me, Kevin, Lieutenant Green Hills from a coach gave me his belt buckle he wore every day, 30 years on the fire department. That's on the top. So as these start getting, growing and growing, I get a call from Mike Curry's mom. She goes, I'm watching everything on Facebook. She goes, I need to meet you. Oh. So, with the, with all the people up to now, I've met with every single family member, and it was rough. And, uh, so I made a trip up to Savannah, met her at a Cracker Barrel, and four hours, we're in there. She bought a, brought a four-inch binder and told me every story about Mike Kurt. What a guy. So she gives me a shirt, one of her shirts, and she goes, uh, I gotta get going, you know, this and that. And I said, all right, I walked out to your car and I was getting ready to leave. And she goes, well, I gotta ask you one more thing. I said, okay. She goes, I want you to carry Mike. And I said, I don't need anything else. I have this amazing pass tag. She goes, no, I want you to carry Mike. I said, what do you mean? She opens her purse. She took out his ashes. And uh, she proceeded to give me Mike's ashes. And she said the same thing Damon did. That... Uh, I believe if Mike was alive, he would be walking with you this whole way, and uh, he needs to be with you. So, you know, so many people think that that walk was just this political thing. But there was a lot to it. And I still hadn't figured out what I was going to do. And after that, Ann Mulkey got a hold of me. Uh, Lewis Mulkey was the last of the Charleston Nine firefighters that were found. Went to dinner with her. She told me about Lewis. Then went to her house. 
I mean, total stranger. She invited me over to her house at 9 o'clock at night, showed me pictures of him, told me about him, and then proceeded to take his helmet down and write Love Mom on his helmet shield and had me take it off. He's on the back. So, within probably four weeks, I decided what I wanted to do was just walk around the perimeter of the take a year. I said, obviously, it sounds like I need to sit with families, just listen to their stories, give them some relief and carry their... Because I didn't realize the effect that you just carrying something of someone brought them so much joy. Okay, write someone's name and badge number on a mile marker on the thin red line and put a flag. And I found out, I did it just to honor a few guys. Like when I was going through, uh, I found out Jimmy, I met Jimmy Perez's mom and dad in, uh, Colorado. I got invited up there a couple years ago to bring the pack and and uh, escort some widows at uh, the first year after the walk. Then the second year I got invited again before COVID and I met Jimmy Perez's, the first guy given to me by Savannah. What a good dude. He was like 23, 26, died of cancer. And uh, his parents, they're, they're divorced separate uh, they have separate spouses but what good good parents so one day going to Georgia I said I got in trouble by someone in the Keys that was trying to sponsor me for writing on the mile markers every mile I'd write the name of a firefighter like mile one with shake mile two JP and posting them uh, the sponsor said, don't fucking do that, you know, our names responded for is on this and that, and I said, look at, leave now if you have to, but uh, the whole deal was, I'm, I'm doing this for these guys, I'm not doing it to make money, I'm not doing it for, I'm not doing it for anything but this, and uh, that's a whole other story, but uh, the first 70 something miles, and then finally the guy that was driving the little 15-foot camper I'd stand, said, you got to stop. So, what I did was start buying tape where I could put black and then red duct tape, like the thin red, and put their name on it. And that way, they could pull it off if they had to. So, driving one day, I had a few little American flags, and it came to me to put them on mile marker. So, I put one in Georgia, put Perez, hung a flag and his mom took a picture of it like two days later sent it to me saying I started bowling when I saw this how did you know I lived here I said I, I didn't she goes I drive this route every day happened again in North Carolina I put one up so I said that's when I I don't know I've put up probably 50 now and a lot of them, I've got one flag in my truck now I carry with me. I'm going to frame to send to one of the wives, uh, widows. Um, if I see them in my routes, like I'm driving at this side of South Carolina, I know the mile markers, I'll replace them with new ones. 
and uh, Jimmy's mom, uh, I have to show you the picture, it was getting torn down. So I've probably replaced that one four or five times. For one time it was hanging. So she took it off. She put it on a frame, the ripped up tape, put on by bull, mom marked by mom, and she has a picture of her son, and it's hanging on the wall. I mean, no. How do you know that what you kind of think is crazy and what people around you are telling you is wrong to do is helping other people? You know? Like I said, I, I couldn't explain to people what was happening to me uh, taking... Delma and Priest and all these guys' pictures and putting them on my wall. It wasn't morbid. I remembered them. They were important in my life. People were important in your life, and we forget them. You know, I see these fucking signs all over the place. Never forget. We forget. Yes, life goes on. But you know what? I got to make myself remember. And this was my way of doing it. I didn't have one tattoo two years ago. Every cross, all the tattoos were when I was walking, people gave me crosses. People did this. And I'd wear, the first one was this, uh, a priest got a hold of me from uh, Mary the Universe down by Universal, that Catholic church, but it's for all religions. And, uh, the Catholic priest got a hold of me and said, I want to come, I want you to come, I want to know your story. And this is before I walked. And he goes, I want to bless your pack. I got pictures of this guy, he cried, he blessed me, hugged me, took me around the whole place, and then handed me this rosary he's had for 30, 40 years. And the lady that, that was his assistant standing there and she was breaking down she got a hold of me we're friends now and she goes I've never seen him in fact that Easter <laughs> his homily was about this fireman no. <laughs> doing what uh, he thought Christ would do he sat in the church so during the walk I get a call from this priest saying, hey, boy, you still got my uh, rosary? I said, I wear it every day. And he goes, okay, good. I said, well, what's going on, Father Paul? So he got diagnosed with cancer. Thank God they removed it. He's doing all right. But uh, so I go by to see him every now and then when I can. But every tattoo, what happened was like the, I had a lot of the stuff on a chain, but they started rusting and breaking. And so I put them in a bag. And uh, well, one day, like I said, that thought came that you need to put it on your skin. And I said, well, I don't wear tattoos. You know, I'm not a biker. I'm not a tough guy. And so I had that put on. And the feeling I had after it was healing almost. I don't, I don't know how to explain it. So I put on the three nails because I picked up three railroad ties when I was walking. You know, that felt good. Next thing I know, I'm 
I had this one of Christ hung differently. That was a statue. And I put that, and then I wanted to start fireman stuff. Christ face after he's beaten. This rosary Joe Terry gave to me when I met her in Kentucky. It was given to her when she was 12 or 14. A nun had gone to the Vatican and the Pope had blessed it. So this thing's got to be over 40 years old. And she gave it to me. So I had it tattooed on my arm with hands. And then uh, I had an overwhelming feeling to start putting down my hand and and then what started was putting numbers of in names of some of the fallen firefighters on and then uh, lightning dave hall made me a directory that says keeping chapin's promise my brother's burden of all the orange county guys from the 1970s and so these are all the county guys who have passed away and i've got a list of another 40 something i have to put on but my problem is is that um, they're saying I, I've got to give my body more time to heal because about every two weeks I get something cut on. There's like over 100 now because I got it on my chest. And, uh, but we were talking about the shields. So as I picked them up, I finally decided what I wanted to do was walk. Carl Andriano? Yep. Yeah. Andy Kuchar, that one still kills me, him and Whitney. They were helping us do this. They're helping us. Me and Joe, they're both dead now. Um, it came apparent that all these families feel forgotten by the fire service. And I tried to explain to them I tried to explain to them by sharing my experience. They said, I don't know why other guys do it, but I can tell you the honest to God truth is that I used the excuse that I didn't want to see your husband, like uh, Kathy, I think her name was, Green, Greenhouse, Greenwood. I don't remember his name. Uh, he, he was like the maintenance caretaker of, uh, where Orange County went to train, um, where the tower is, the training tower, mid-Florida. Mm -hmm. um, and he was a lieutenant for 30 years at Ocoee. When I went to pick up this, the belt buckle from them and stuff, she goes, do you have time to sit with me for a while? And I said, yeah. We went upstairs on the computer and she showed me his decline. She goes, no fireman will come up here and sit with us. And I saw him, I got pictures still of him with the tumor in his head and him. It was horrible. But I realized leaving there that, holy shit, we're such a big part of these people's lives. Their loved one dies. And for some reason, they don't do anything. And I, I try to share my experience before Shaky was that I use the excuse, because all it can be is an excuse that I was scared and fearful to see them this way. So how can I say I'm my brother's keeper and I love him if at their worst time I won't be there?
and I did it. So I kind of, kind of set myself up to where when anyone calls, it don't matter where you are, I'm gonna go. You know, that's why I ended up going to Kentucky. That's why I went to Milford and Massachusetts to meet with guys up there. That's why I went when I was homeless, staying in a hotel, instead of driving myself crazy, feeling sorry for myself one weekend, I drove to Alabama, called the Indian that wrote that book because I found out where he lived and said, if I'm ever in the area, can we meet? I'm gonna meet you. And he goes, well, I don't, uh, I don't usually meet strangers this and that. He goes, but I've been, uh, I followed what you did and he goes, I think you remember I sent you. So he sent me a gift on the walk. I got it somewhere in Port Orange or somewhere like that. He said, yeah, if you're ever around here. And I said, guess what? I'm going to be there coming through your town this weekend. And I had actually got there the night before. So I met with him, the author, Jerry, uh, Jerry Ellis. We we're going to meet for 30 minutes. We stayed in the Waffle House for almost two hours. He, uh... He gave me a, an old ancestral rock and he said, I want you to draw an arrow on it. And he drew one through it and he goes, from this day forward, we're brothers. So that was like my third tattoo. I had to put it on where I could see it while I'm driving. And then he said, you still got time? And I said, yeah. And he took me over to one of the entrances to the original Trail of Tears. I'm supposed to go there this August for a writer's class. He wants me to write a book about it this whole thing but I use the excuse that I can't write very well and I don't use the computer so I don't know if I'm gonna go yet or not but getting back to uh, the shields and that it became apparent that uh, my goal was I'm just gonna walk Florida I'm gonna start out in Groveland take a tent walk to like Tampa then go down through the Keys come up go through Tallahassee and come back around and spend a year. As I started walking uh, and posting it, you know, more people started reaching out. And then one of our lieutenants that's retired that I've known 30 years called me and said, Bull, you need to stop what the fuck you're doing because you'll kill yourself. I know you. He goes, let's set up a team, do marketing, research for you this night. He goes, do you even have a plan? I said, no. I, I don't know that I need one. People are reaching out. Why can't I just go this route and say this is the way I'm going? Seems simple enough to me, you know. That way I'm not rushed. And through that came another acquaintance, those people that were just starting that um, non-profit and uh, they seemed to have everything. Back by Millionaire said, uh, we want you as, we want, we, this is what we want to do, what you're doing. And I said, well, what I'm doing, truthfully, is just walking. And I'm spending time with them. That's it. I'm not collecting money. I'm not, I got a retirement. And uh, so we'd have meetings. We'd pray after the meetings. I continued to walk, to train. I gave him a date when I wanted to leave. And um, this lieutenant, you know, started setting me up with uh, 
the GoPros, you know, where I'd wear them here and there while I walk. It just got out of hand. And uh, they said, well, how do you want to stay while you're walking? I said, I guess hotels or I got a tent, you know. Nothing about staying in a fire department came up because I didn't know if anyone would give a shit about this other than the families. And they said, all right, we'll fund it. I said, you're kidding me. And or the lieutenant said, nope, we'll make sure everything's taken care of. We'll get the logistics started and the keys all the way up. So it was roughly between 600 and 650 miles. No, no, it wasn't. I'm sorry. It was planned what I was going to do. What changed was in the meetings, they said, well, if we're doing this to promote first responders, responders for life, this and that, we have to make it short. I said, what do you mean make it short? They said, 30 days, 40 days. I said, I can't walk around this. Well, you're not going to walk around the state. We're thinking, walk up to the East Coast, cross Jacksonville, Tallahassee, or just walk to Orlando. I said, I'm not going to do that. And, you know, I started being bold. And then we decided that we'll follow this one route we had on paper. And then, uh, Probably two, two, no, three weeks before I, the date was, I started seeing things where people weren't doing the things they said they would do, you know, even our friend. And uh, I just kept training. They said, well, before we back you, you have to get an x-ray of your back, your knees, get your feet checked, on and on. So they were going to reimburse me for everything. I went and had the x-rays, went and had my back checked, went and seen a, a podiatrist that this lieutenant set me up with, turned in all the receipts and everything, and still to this day has never got refunded. And actually found my CDs of my back and the x-rays in this guy's truck had never been sent out. Right? Um, so, about 10, two weeks before I walk, it's getting busier and busier, people calling, so I'm driving to different places, and the girl I was seeing got burned in a fire, got her hand burned. So it threw off the date I was leaving. Um, she was like still going, I said, how can I leave when you're under a nurse's care in the house now. So the nurse had eight more days. I met with Orlando, with their benevolent, with their chief, and they said, listen, we want you to go. As soon as she's released from the nurse's care, which she was fine at home, it was just the top of her hand. Um, they said, we'll have people here every day. And it was, it was cool, I was good. I waited an extra 10 days. The bandage was off, and three days before I left, that guy called me and said, can't go, can't be a part of it anymore. I said, wait, wait, you stopped me a month ago and changed everything. He said, if you're my friend, you'll just take it that it's a, a reason I can't. 
And I said, you're not even going to tell me you want. And then this guy, 30 years. To this fucking day, I don't know. So all the research, no one ever checked if I could walk the bridges and the keys. No one. No one checked the mileage, which was supposed to be done. That was helpful for me, you know? So I was left with that company. So we set up the date I was leaving. I think it was the 20th of uh, April. 20th of April. And uh, I told them, listen, it's going to take me roughly 60 days. And they said, you can't go that long. I said, okay, 45 days. Then my, no, at the, at that point, my daughter calls me. She's supposed to be getting married in November. And uh, they change it to May. And I'm walking in April. And I said, Bailey. And she goes, I want to get married at this date. Hope you can make it. And so when I talk about what I've lost during the walk, while I was walking, no one really understands. Um, I didn't hear from my daughter once. My family never came out all the time. My sister came out when I was in Orlando. Thank God my son and my grandkids, who I love to death, and his wife drove down to Tallahassee the last walk. But the rest of the time, there were so many people pissed. So, I called those people and said, listen, two days, three days from now, I'm leaving. Um, they were getting a 30, 40 foot motorhome. Um, this bodybuilder who they, was part of their thing, was making all the meals, a food plan for me to follow. Um, so I wouldn't have to worry about food. Um, I called them the night before and they said, we're still working on the camper. And I'm like, ah, okay. You know, I'm trying not to get upset. I'm thinking, you know what? Bull, be grateful. They're helping you. And the other team has left. And the other team was other firefighters. Friends. Um, of all that. So they said, be here at 5 o'clock in the morning. No, we'll pick you up at 5 o'clock, Spencer. We'll pick you up at 5. We'll meet here at, at the place and we'll go. So we get there, there's no camper or nothing. And they said, well, there's been some problems, so we should have it by noon. And I'm thinking, I've got to be down at the zero mile marker tomorrow morning walking. So I won't get there at 8 o'clock at night. Well, it ended up being worse than that. They never got a camper. So we drove, I drove with them, and then that vehicle, drove with them over to that sunny side or whatever it is near Tampa and I-4 that has, and we rented a 15 fucking foot camper that's on a truck like, you know. And I thought, okay, what? There's no food. There's no sheets or anything. I thought we were staying in hotels, too. And they were like, well, just be grateful. We'll, we'll get that stuff to you. I said, all right. So I said, who else is going? They said, well, you know, your other team are gonna, is going to be down there. I've talked to them. And so I said, I'm happy. I'm just tired. It's 6, six o'clock at night. It's not dark yet. 
maybe it's four. And uh, we head out to the zero mile marker from there with just my backpack of the guys that I'm carrying and another backpack with a couple of changes of clothes. So we get there at two or three in the morning and we sleep in the public's parking lot. No sheets, just plastic on the mattress. And we head that morning, eight o'clock or so, grab something to eat, I think at McDonald's, go to the zero mile marker, and I'm going, there's no fucking person here. Just me and a stranger. And uh, I had to change my attitude. So every time I, you'll think it's crazy, every time I put a shield or a pass tag on the backpack, I pick a song like Jamie Johnson Lead Me Home or uh, I know Isaacs uh, AJ Isaacs from Winter Park who passed away was uh, uh, Dixie Lullaby uh, Mike Ganley was We Fought Hard by Billy Ray Cyrus he's talking about two brothers from one that passes away and so I take time to honor him that way so I said Fuck this, I gotta play some music. So I was at the zero mile mark. You can see the pictures on Facebook. And uh, I take some glue I had and glued Chicky's pass bag to the front of it and wrote in small letters, day one, my brother's burden walk on the buoy. And then I told Spencer, I said, I'm not waiting. It's 10 o'clock in the morning. So we started walking, me and him. And we walked, it took a few hours, but we walked out of the Keys, it's like four miles, stopping and right on every post. Um, I think we made it like 10 miles and then we took lunch. And I was totally exhausted because of the heat. Remember, I think it was Irma had gone through there a few months ahead of time. So when you're driving, everything looks good. When you're walking, it's total disaster. There's no sidewalk. And 10 feet away from the road, there's still rubble, brush. The freaking iguanas were like, it was funny as shit. You know, usually they hide. They're running past you while you're walking. It, I got a video of me grabbing one's tail. I was watching them dodge traffic. Um, so we go to the restaurant, we eat, and he goes, I'm going to Uber back and get our... Um, shit mobile he called it and he went and got that so about two hours he finally showed up and that was the only time he ever walked with me through the whole keys so to tell you I thought I have fucked up that no one even some of my good friends showed up no one called no one said hey are you doing alright except the girl I was dating and three days in she goes you need to quit now and come home and I said I can't quit I gotta go at least one more day she goes how do you feel and I said every night I feel like my back is breaking and my feet are killing me but every morning when I wake up what I did was when I laid down at night a lot of nights I didn't even eat I just laid on that plastic I never got sheets until I got out of the keys and um, I'd ask God, I'd just say, if you want me to continue this, can I at least feel better tomorrow? 
and day, truthfully, every morning, other than being tight, my feet didn't hurt. So I figured I'd walk. And about five days in, um, people started reaching out. People that had seen me walking that were on vacation, be a fireman from Minnesota or a fireman from here would take a picture. But not one person wanted to walk and carry a pack. Um, so between questioning if I'm doing the right thing or losing my sanity, I'd be standing on the side of the road pissing. I just didn't give a shit anymore. I'd be sleeping under a bridge, you know. Um, I started noticing God. The, one day I was bitching so bad going over like the third bridge. So I started leaving at like 5 in the morning. You cross those bridges. First of all, the mediums go from 2 feet to 4 feet to the yellow line. They're not 6 or 8 feet. And I forgot that there's a lot of drunks on the keys. So leaving at 5 in the morning when it's dark and cool is not going to work because they'll drive right at you. There was times I was on top of the the guardrail or holding on to it when the trucks went by. And I thought, I can't do this anymore. I got to leave like at 9 or 10 in the morning. So you'd be, you'd be walking. There's some nights I walked till midnight. And the mileage was shorter. I think the most I walked was 15 miles and it took 15 hours because you'd stop at every light. You'd have to let people cross. Um, and I couldn't carry enough water and food because uh, I didn't have anything set up for that. I thought it was all going to be there, which it never showed up. I paid for a hotel twice with my, my uh, cash. I took $300 cash with me. Uh, I paid for a hotel twice. And then um, one day I'm bitching, just fucking bitching. Hadn't prayed anything that morning. And I'm walking over a bridge, cussing, kicking shit, and I step on a big pink pacifier. And I start laughing. So God, I got the message. I said, I'm supposed to do something for someone else, and I'm bitching because no one else showed up. Truth is, no one else was asked to do this. I guess you wanted me to do it. I'm not going to whine anymore, and I still got that pacifier. Someone wrote that it's probably a butt plug, but... <laughs> but it was little things like that. So one day, probably the halfway in, I'm walking, and I see way up ahead this guy kneeling. And we had... The night before, we had passed it. So what we would do is, there's a lot of places you're not allowed to sleep overnight. And I didn't know that ahead of time. I didn't know any of this shit, because I thought it was taken care of. And if I stopped, like, at the 88-mile marker, we'd have to drive to find a construction site or a parking lot where we could park the camper and sleep. And, you know, I'd mark it, mark the place. We'd come back the, the next day, and I'd start usually 15 feet behind it just to make sure I didn't miss a step all the way through Florida. That's what we did. So uh, I noticed that on... Um, on that area, it was a straight road. The, the straight Keys Road and another road came into it. Um, there was a bunch of shit, um, like blankets or shirts or uh, neck scarves hanging from a fence. 
So here's this, the same truck is there that day, and some guys kneeling on the road, and I walk by him, and it's like a shrine. And this guy's crying, kneeling there, and got my earphones in, and I said, don't, don't stop and talk, bull. Yeah, I don't know if you get it, but you get these little knots, little knocks on your head or on your heart that say, talk to that person. Yeah. You need to say something to them. You need to give them a dollar. And I'll, a lot of times I talk myself out of it. Well, I must have walked 50 feet past them, and it was constant. And I said, fuck it. Okay, you turn around. And I said it loud. And the guy looked at me. And I walked back, and I said, uh, I, I don't know you. You don't know me. I said, but... I'm supposed to stop and talk to you. <laughs> and remember, I got the long hair and the beard. And he goes, no problem, dude. I said, uh, I'm a fireman. Uh, I got this backpack on. Fireman that are passed away, and I'm walking from here to, to Tallahassee. And he looks at me, and he goes, are you shitting me? And I said, no. He goes, you're fucking nuts, aren't you? And I said, yeah. I said, kind of feel like it. He goes, who's with you? I said, these guys and that's it I said how about you and he breaks down he goes the lady I was gonna marry got run over by a drunk driver here uh, three weeks ago and I said oh and he started telling me the story he had rescued her when Irma came through and it's videoed he sent me uh, we still stay in touch he sent me videos of the rescue, getting her out of the house that collapsed on her. It was all over the news. And so we started talking. I said, you know, this sounds weird, but uh, I think I'm supposed to carry your girlfriend to Tallahassee with these guys. And he breaks down. He goes, they're all heroes. And I said, it doesn't matter. She's, she's welcome to come. And so, shaking, he takes a rock, and he wrote her name on this rock he picked out. And he was, he wouldn't let go of me, and he gave it to me and put it in the pack. And I walked away going, uh, all right, you know, there's a longer story to it, but I walked away just going, okay, God, I'm going to listen to it from now on. And this guy had, for the first year, every week I'd hear from him, he, he would tell me how grateful he was that day changed some of his grief. So what I did was I'm walking, I'm getting ready to go over another bridge, and I'm sitting taking a break, and I said, what, what is happening with all this? And I, there was a bunch of those old lobster buoys laying around from the storm. So I got the idea where I took one, I wrote her name on it and a marker, took her out to the middle of the bridge and let her go. And I'd sent it back to him, I'm sorry, and that's when he said, that right there changed my grief, seeing that you released her and let her go. And what was funny, Dave, is I throw it in the water, and it rolls over, and her name comes up, and I watch her name float away. It's crazy. So on and on, I'm having these things happen. You know, while I'm walking, and I start to forget that no one else is supposed to be there. It was like, sounds rude, but like when Christ talks about those 40 days and 40 nights where things changed for him. If I wouldn't have had that 127 miles by myself, 
if it would have been the fanfare and all that, um, I don't know what would have happened. This, my faith in that power greater than myself and that there is someone that takes care of you, I don't even question it now. There is no way this body should have made it alone. Um, at the 88 mile marker, two firemen came up to me saying, we're so glad you started posting videos on Facebook. We've been following you. We just can't find you. It's funny. I'm walking on a one-way road, and no one can find me, but they're thinking I'm at the 50-mile marker, whatever. And that's the first time it was Adam Parks and Gil from Miami-Dade. They both fought over, can I carry the pack? So we walked about a half a mile talking, and they said, we're going to send some people down here for you to help you. And I said, you know, let me get to the very end. And they said, that's another 40-something miles, another two or three days. I said, I've been alone this whole time. Let me just get to the end, and then we'll see. Part of me was not trusting again. And a part of me was I just wanted to finish it, me and God, you know. And about that time, uh, uh, one of the fire departments reached out at the airport there and they actually cooked dinner for me and let me spend the night in shower because I wasn't showering a lot, you know. I was wearing the same clothes. We went on laundry mat one day, you know, I took the one day off. And then uh, when I made it to the end, I don't want to get into all those stories, when I made it to the end, um, they called me those guys and said, are you there? I said, when you're supposed to be there? I said, I'll be here. They said, we'll come out. I said, no, I got a place. This other department's going to put me up for the night. And they said, we'll be there at 630 the next morning. And sure enough, Miami and Miami-Dade with two vehicles showed up with three guys. Uh, two City of Miami firefighters that are still good friends. And Adam Parks, who's a friend now from Miami-Dade, they had their canteen truck full of water and food, and they had a chief's car. They said, you don't have anyone, like, keeping people away from me? I said, no, I've walked on the side of the road this whole way. I, I don't know who to ask anymore, you know? And they said, well, from here to wherever, we're going to have somebody in front and behind you. And what that did was it gave me food and water instead of me trying to buy it and find it because you can only carry so much um i carried the pack for the first two miles adam paramedic said you look like shit i said man i haven't felt good for a day and a half he goes when's the last time you peed and i said two days and he goes what the fuck you not drinking water i said i can't drink any more water i'm drinking till my belly's full and I didn't realize in the training that there's certain foods you should eat and what you should drink, you know. So they gave me two or three IVs before I could pee. And I tell you, it was like night and day. And so they said, you realize how long this walk is. You are going to walk out of the Keys to the mainland in one day by yourself. And I said, yeah, it's like 12 or 15 miles. I said, no, it's 24 miles. I said, I never knew that. I was going by what I knew in my head because I thought 
nothing was planned out like it was supposed to be. And uh, after the first two miles, those guys carried the pack the rest of the way. First time in 127 miles, I didn't have to carry it. And it was unbelievable. And we walked out of the Keys, man. We walked, and I came up, and they said, are you ready for this? I said, what? And I looked. They've got two ladder trucks across the road, the flags. They've got six fire trucks, probably 30 guys, just cheering. <laughs> and I fucking lost it. I lost it. I thought, you know, what I was doing was wrong. <laughs> And there were like three angels. And uh, that night, uh, they fed me good. They put me up and uh, I couldn't walk. And they put me in a room, they called a priest, they called a doctor, and they called a therapist. And uh, the doctor said, you can't walk on these. You can't walk on your ankles tomorrow. I don't know what you've done. I said, I have to. He goes, you got two toenails, black and blue. And so uh, the therapist said, let me try some stuff. So for an hour, she did uh, the pins where you put them in. She did that. And she did the electric shock and said, just see how you feel in the morning. But he, he's shaking his head. He was pissed. He said, you need to take a couple days. And I said, I can't. And so like usual, the next morning, it's like brand new. And what started there is what continued out. They said, uh, you have your map. And like, like I'm telling you, this happened this quick. I said, yeah, but I don't want to use it anymore. I said, what if you guys get me to the next place 15 miles down the road? And they said, so we'll be part of this? I said, however you want to do it. I said, I don't know where I'm going, truthfully. I have no fucking clue. I said, people that were supposed to show up, blah, blah, blah. I said, I'm lost. But I got to get to Tallahassee. And uh, that started where one department would work with another department. And they took care of everything. And that happened for the next 700 miles. It was crazy. I couldn't have planned... I think one of the big things that came out of that walk was the Brotherhood and the fire department took a shift. And these guys would say, I, we wouldn't talk to these people before, and now we're friends. I get calls now where two different departments are hanging out together and they're asking me to come down because they had to work together to make sure I'd be safe. Um, and from that day forward, it went from three people walking with me to up to 300, 400 people some days, you know. Uh, from that day forward, I never stopped at another stoplight. Either a cop would come or there'd be a fire engine in front, a fire engine back. And then we started doing, uh, they asked me about the packs and I told them that, well, this is what I do when I put them on. And uh, so every morning we started that Guardian celebration where I'd play whatever song I wanted. I'd talk a little bit about it. They'd put something on the pack. And when I got to Miami, the next day is when all the doctors from 
it was funny. I walk in the place and there's media, there's people everywhere, huge breakfast, and they start grilling me about cancer in Florida. So I'd have information. And I said, guys, I, I don't, I'm not here for this political thing, please. And Omar Blanco, the union president, said, Tom, we know. And we know you have a problem with the unions, this and that. I said, I don't have a problem, but I'm not political. And they said, we think you can help us. And I said, okay, as long as, as long as I don't have to do anything stupid and just keep this grassroots for the families. And uh, that's where I got a lot of good information. Uh, that's when uh, Jerry Balboa's wife, Claire, uh, gave me his past tag with, uh, she had two infants and two or three other kids with her. And in front of everyone, she told me about Jerry, and she handed it to me, and I broke down. I broke down. And uh, Keith, like, what's Keith's last name? The guy that, the head of the cancer thing in Florida. Him and uh, Miguel, or him and uh, Blanco said, these are the Miami-Dade firefighters who have died of cancer we want you to carry. And they rolled it out, and it was a six-foot, string past tag of all the guys that had died from cancer up to that day. And I was like, fuck, this is bigger than I ever thought. So the backpack I had carrying my notes and stuff became Miami Dates. And like I said, I went there with 84, 85 people. And when I finished in Tallahassee, we had over 900. Um, items, I'm not counting each pass tag, and I think 10 backpacks. And now I have close to 13, 1500 items. But I know we got to cut this short, but let me tell you, every day was like that. The next day started where they asked if I would talk to widows, wives, or fathers. And I like, the, what do you mean? They said, there's people reaching out for miles that want to put their husband or son on that backpack and they want to meet you. So every morning at, uh, we do the celebrations at nine, every morning at eight, uh, <laughs> I would, every department had a little office. I'd go and there'd be one to three or four people in there and I'd sit and listen to every story before we start to walk. And some of them were uh, uh, Richard Sandell's. Uh, when, uh, when he committed suicide, he, uh, Diana was six months pregnant. He held her by the arm and shot And I'd hear story, story. I mean, people would I'd be walking down the street and I'd have father run up and grab me. Um, so what happened was I ended up meeting with, up to this date now, 123 women. And let me tell you, when I hit Tallahassee, it was like I was totally exhausted. 
But what was funny was we get to Tallahassee and they're telling me that we're going to have to walk on the sidewalk and be able to walk on the road and that we might not be able to finish the walk in Tallahassee because I don't have a permit. And I said, you've had 50 fucking days to get ready. I said, now I'm going to be pissed. I'm tired. You guys know I've been coming. This walk's going on. So when they put me in the firehouse the next day at 7 a.m., Jason Wheat, uh, I think Ariel, a couple other guys had to stand there like bodyguards. They had like, they said 600. I think it was closer to 300 or 400. The whole bay, the whole big station was full. And the cops came in, and one of the chiefs said, we need you to announce to everyone that we have to walk on the sidewalk, we have to do this. I said, I ain't gonna do it. I can't do it. This was massive. So when we finished, it was only three miles. I can remember pausing at the foot of the Capitol steps. And just thanking God that uh, I got there. But the strange thing was, is I didn't have any relief. Still sad, still. So I walked up, <clears throat> and Omar, <laughs> Omar Blanco, bless his heart, had run up the stairs on the other side around everyone so he could film it. And he hugs me, he goes, how's it feel, how's it feel? And I said, Omar, it feels like it's just starting. I don't know what to tell you. And that's when it's, it's really grown. Then I left Florida, got home within two weeks. The girl I was with came in one night and said, gotta leave. Can't give me what you need, what I need anymore. It's done. After almost seven years. So I stayed in the other room that night. And then said, you know, I can't do this. So I went and checked out three hotels over on the other side of Groveland. And I found an old shitty one. And I forgot we had stopped there. And I walked in and talked to him. And they said, yeah, we could probably put you up for a couple of days. So I went out to get my wallet, came back in. And she had gotten the manager and she's smiling. And, uh, I said, are you sure it's okay? It might be longer than a couple of days. They said, we're gonna give you a room. It won't cost you anything and you can stay as long as you want. And I said, what? She goes, well, you walk right past here. What you've done is so good. So, stayed there. The day I got really down is when I decided to drive said instead of being down, I need to go do something that would be good for me. So I went to, drove to Alabama 16 hours to meet the Indian. Drove back and uh, was virtually homeless. Couldn't stay really in Florida because uh, truthfully I couldn't go really anywhere. You know, it was the news calling you, someone calling you, somebody wanting you do a commercial, someone wanting this, and it was like, you don't understand, this, this is about these families, it's got nothing to do with this, I, I'd rather be broke than do that, 
So I went up to South Carolina and my daughter uh, stayed there for two and a half years and these last couple of years I stayed with my son until October when uh, I got a houseboat. And let me tell you that story real quick. It's, I've been wanting one for like 20, 30 years, but they're so expensive. And Marion An- Anderson Dunn was what I reached out to me saying that, boy, you're staying at these Airbnbs, you're staying at these old hotels, you're staying here when you're running around doing all this work. Um, and she got me to admit that I had spent about 20, 30 grand out of my retirement. Cause everything we have in the fund is run off the donations. If there's not donations, I gotta spend the money. She goes, we got a spare room. Me and Eric are gone every now and then. We want you to start watching the boat. So I would stay there when I'm down in Florida for two or three months. A boat down from them, a little 50 footer, um, which is considered tiny, came up for sale and she said, why don't you buy that? You know, I said, I can't afford that. And we talked to the people and not unbeknownst to me, while I wasn't talking to them, she was sending them YouTube videos, telling them to see who this guy was. And I told them we came up with a price that I could afford Barely, I would have to take a lump sum out of my retirement, and uh, which I didn't want to do, and then I would have had to make payments and stuff. So what ended up happening was I was supposed to get it now, uh, February, March. They called me in September while I was in Florida and said, uh, we want to sell it October, first week. I said, I can't afford it now, and they said, if we sell it to you for $50,000, can you buy it? And I said, what is wrong with it? And they said, nothing. It was freshly remodeled six months ago. And they took a hell of a lot off because Marion had shared what I'd been doing just so I'd have a home. And it's, it's kind of been like that. You know, but it's it's been hard. Kentucky was super hard because I didn't know anyone there. Uh, it's supposed to be a 98 mile walk. They call them hills. I damn sure call them mountains. <laughs> we do 20, 22, 24. I only had six days to do it, and it ended up being like 120 to 150 miles because again, no one drove it. You know the the Google Maps are good. While I was there, the first two days, the two days before the walk, I met Andy Kutcher, who was a roughneck. He, uh, fireman's fireman, bourbon drinker, um, athlete, just a tough guy. His wife had reached out to the house I was staying at. He came to meet me and um, just wouldn't really talk, but wanted to talk, you know. Uh, he had tried to commit suicide, I guess two or three times. His daughter caught him the last time with a gun. 41, 42, and uh, I got to know Andy. In fact, the next day he came to hang out with me while I was building the uh, Kentucky pack to get started. And then uh, he said, I'm gonna come out and walk one day with you. 
Well, in all the walks so far, he's the only guy that walked the whole way with me anywhere. Came out and he walked. Um, theirs was all about getting a PTSD bill passed. Um, got to know Andy. Fell in love with Andy. I met uh, Joe Terry, her husband Chip was the chief up there. One of these guys that everyone in the state knew. A man's man, just a father of six, and walked away one night after being in treatment and um, killed himself. And while I was up there, the day before I left, Joe reached out about having dinner and talking and, and got to meet her and her family. So still very close to Joe, love her. And what I've done in the last couple of years was uh, team up with them. We've uh, actually been able to get 31 people into treatment. And 30 of them are still alive, doing well. Which is pretty good for two small nonprofits, you know. But back to Andy was, uh, I made sure I went up there probably every month or two, stay and see Joe, and me and Andy would work out and train. Like I said, it was just like me. He was fighting his, uh, his demons bad to the point where he asked me one time, um, or what, Bull, what are you looking at? I said, I'm looking at a mirror. I said, you're dead. You're gonna be dead if you don't get help. I said, I can't lie to you. And uh, he finally went in Told me the first week he was there. I don't know what happened, but uh, he was a changed man. I don't know if it's medication or what. He cleared him up for a little bit, came back, helping us with the foundation. So for a year and a half, two years, uh, we trained together. Um, he was dating a 31-year-old paramedic. Whitney, she trained with us, and then I got a call one night that he had died. Uh, his heart exploded. What I found out was that, uh, you know, it still kills me because he was one of the guys that got really close to it there. And uh, I guess through steroid use and regular steroids aren't going to do that. So there had to be a lot more involved. So for, I was invited to go back. I was one of the eight people that could be at his funeral because of COVID. That night, Whitney asked me if I'd come back and, and uh, live with her and the two sons for a month to help her get situated again. Said I'd be back. Um, came back a couple times in between to help her sell Andy's motorcycle. Just. I'd FaceTime her for like two weeks straight and I saw this woman go from a complete wreck to finally taking a shower, finally getting out, she was doing good. And I left and said, I'll be back in four days. I had to come back here for Julian Serrano. Um, he's part of the Amelia Rivera Fund for first responders. And he was doing 100 miles in 24 hours. So I run a chase vehicle for him in front and behind. Joe came down and uh, we were up for 48 hours, I think it was. Finally got to bed, 
got a call at six o'clock that morning, the day before we're going back to Whitney, that she drove off that night and shot herself. And Dave, it's been, it's been horrible. I've had quite a few people get upset with me saying that I have lied, that I'm doing too much for PTSD and not cancer. And I'm like, guys, you, you don't even know what I'm doing. You know, I got a guy that mentors people with cancer. And other than that, it's me sharing my experience with being on the water tower, almost committing suicide, addiction, which I fit in that mode a little bit better than fighting political fights, you know. We helped Eric. So we do both, but uh, uh, a couple months ago, I think there was three, I called to Turtle, Ron Saxon over in Fort St. Lucie, hung himself. It was, I was down here for another suicide actually, and then when I got called from Mike, Bonham, that was a whole new experience because uh, I told Kim I'd set up, she really didn't want fire department involved at first. She wanted to keep it silent like a lot of families do. And we talked and I told her, Kim, this needs to come out. There's no signs and symptoms, well, there wasn't necessarily there's something. So within a week, three weeks, she started changing and telling me the truth. You know, she had to heal. So I did their celebration for life, which was a big learning curve. But, uh, it's bad. What do you mean by learning curve? I had never, one, just, you know, we've been friends for a while. But just this short time, you've been trying to get me on the podcast. You see how inept I am. You know, I'll write notes, but don't keep up with them. I get sidetracked so quick. And to tell her, don't worry about anything, I'll handle it. And then realizing that means setting up dinners, uh, setting up uh, the the hall to have the celebration of life and everything. I don't think it was a learning curve. It was maybe a, a learning moment on how to do this. So I called some people I knew and they helped me out with that. So, but now, uh, upon everything else, get ready to take another big walk. And it's kind of scary. Because the last one, we didn't even talk about that, but because we're running 14 hours into this. And so, did Florida, went homeless, lived with my kids, but before that, walked the miles in Kentucky, had about a two week break, and some people in Georgia asked me to help them with a 5K, so I went up there and did the Grand Marshall thing and walked that. Took too many wrong turns coming back. It took me nine hours to get back. Got out of my vehicle and had a stroke. Luckily, someone had called me and said, hey, I'm taking my kids to a concert outside. Would you want to come? And it was in Oviedo here instead of driving to Groveland. So that cut, what, almost two hours off the trip, hour and a half. 
got out of the car, dropped my keys, dropped my wallet. She goes, you don't look good. I think you're having a stroke. And I said, I can't be. And next thing I know, I can't walk. She shoves me in the car, drives me to the hospital, um, have the stroke. They're doing all their, their stuff. In three hours, I'm back to normal. So the doctor says, we haven't run all the tests yet, but maybe it was just TIA or whatever it is, or mini. He goes, do you want to take that, that stuff they give you for stroke preventive? And I said, what would you do? I said, I have no clue. I just went through all this. And he goes, ah, yeah, you don't need it. And I said, okay. They kept me overnight at seven o'clock the next morning, full blown again, couldn't talk couldn't walk, couldn't use my hand, my right side. So I stayed there a little over a week and a half where I could finally move around, I could talk again, but I couldn't remember things. And then I went to uh, the Stroke Center in Charleston for two or three weeks. I was in that rehab, running and walking. Yeah. And then, uh, it's funny, that was October, so November, December, I think in January I did my first long walk again, which was a half marathon. Miami called me up for uh, Never Walk Alone, and then that Geico, whatever marathon they have every year in Miami, the firemen get together for Never Walk Alone suicide prevention, they walk half of it. So they put me up in a hotel, Went and got another tattoo that night of one of the guys from down there. Walked about seven of that. Still, it was the first thing after the stroke. Ended up tearing a little less than a half inch hole in my stomach. Didn't know it. Just knew that night I felt sick during the walk. That night I started running a fever. The next day I was supposed to leave and told them, hey, can I stay another night? I can't get out of this room. Ran a fever. No blood coming out anywhere. Drove to Orlando, day three. Stayed at my buddy's house two days, sleeping. Day five. The night of day four, I got to South Carolina at my son's. That next morning at five o'clock, I woke up, throwing up clots of blood, shedding blood. It was all over. They called. The ambulance got transported and they did one of those emergency uh, where they burn cauterizer. He said you've been bleeding for five days. <laughs> yeah, good thing I don't drink. <laughs> but. The good thing is, I found powerlifting. So I started training again, and you know, I, I started collecting weights and equipment 20 years ago as an investment to the garage sales. So I had a warehouse full of stuff. I got stuff in a gym here, gym in Carolina, and now one in Kentucky, stuff in each of them. So since I can't do CrossFit or anything high level, because I have no grip and stuff on my, no balance, can't run with a fake knee, blah, 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 and stroke. Uh, the lady that owns the gym is a power lifter in, in South Carolina, Heather Falls, and she got me into that. 
And let me tell you, it's been great. What's wild is I'm stronger now than I was before the stroke. The hardest part is trying to control my right side. Yeah. It's like when you put the weight on your back, it wants to collapse. So I gotta really think about keeping everything tight and, and squatting up and down. When I first started just putting a bar on my back and stepping backwards, I'd fall over. And now uh, I squatted 430 um, at a competition. Yeah, I can walk backwards. Barely, it's a circus act. <laughs> but, and then on a, one of those trap bars, I've actually pulled 501. I couldn't pull 500 pounds when I was healthy. I could, when the fifth pit, I never lifted over 425. And then on the straight bar the other day, I was able to pull 475. So my goal before 62 is that was 500 pounds. So, the Firehood Foundation. Can can you talk a little bit about that? How yeah. that came to be, and what what your mission is. Uh, <clears throat> it came to be after the walk. Um, just by there was about six or seven people I met on the walk that. Uh, like Jason Wheat, other than Jason Wheat, Jason Wheat was taken off duty for the last almost 300 miles to walk with me because Dro said I wouldn't walk alone again. There was uh, Steve Tapana from Palm Bay. A few other guys, you know, reached out and said we need to start a foundation. So we did, and I had those seven on the board, but uh, I didn't know what I was doing. So, you know me, I'd go and do something or do that and call for help with this or that and never set anything up. So that kind of fell apart. And then Joe decided to help me some, a lot. Um, I have a guy that's retired down in Boynton Beach, Rob Rosovich. He like does the taxes for me. Uh, he started the first website and then I got Joe Militella who does cancer. Um, mentoring like you do with firemen he mentors guys going through cancer and then other than that i'd be the ref or the hat make up the logo and then run everything because the sad part is when people call they want to have me come talk to them and do stuff instead of one of the other guys that are pretty capable so what we do um is just about anything we've helped the fire chief from Haines City, his daughter got burnt out of her apartment. So we set her up in an apartment, paid all the fees to begin with in the first month um, to get her started. We put, helped put over 30 people into treatment. Mike, uh, one of our retirees, we got him into treatment. Um, it was 15, we had to, he didn't have insurance, so we, it was 15,000 cash because he needed a 10 day doctor rehab and he was there 60 days. But through social media, we raised 12,000 and I had 3,000 of my own and Joe donated a thousand or two and got him. I put on the fundraiser for Eric's and I raised funds for him. 
I've house sat for people so they can get away for their last few times. Um, we'll do just about anything for them. Mainly we have a resource to where if they call, I can get them into treatment or to a therapist. With the cancer, it's kind of, it's kind of, there's not a real guideline because they might need a house payment paid, they might need something else. Um, other than that, you know, we're not big enough to pay all their, their medical bills, but we can try to get them someone, get them an attorney. Um, I've had a couple people reach out that are just normal citizens for help, to help them. So, that and mainly like the walks. People are asking for the walks. Um, I had a firefighter in Polk County commit suicide who we did that walk in Polk County and his father is a DEA agent came there after the walk came up to me in tears and said I don't know what happened to me during this walk but it was spiritual I need and he worked for uh, Coral Springs which is where the high school shooting was the 17 people got killed he said I need you to come down there and help the community heal so we actually did a walk for them I had a backpack made up his uh, uh, had 17 guardian angel coins glued to it I had a lady make it she embroidered a big angel and then all the departments police fire that responded were put on the pack a couple of the parents of the children came to it and then the guy that built the temple down there, I don't know if you remember, they had a temple for a year that people could go right on it and then they burned it the day that we walked. Um, gave me the ashes from there to carry. So we've done a little bit of everything. Right now we're setting up seminars where we did one here where um, I share the story of my recovery, of where I was, uh, no real war stories at all, and talk about treatment. And then I try to uh, go over the steps and some kind of tools that the guys can use when they leave. And then from there, we'll go in depth further. Joe Giz comes in and she talks about a widow's point of view, which we never hear. You know? And those have been successful. So that's uh, St. Cloud. I think Osceola and Kissimmee were going. Uh, I think Miami Date is going to be a video one. Port St. Lucie. So a lot of seminars now. So, how would somebody get in touch with you if they wanted to set something up or they knew somebody that needed some help? Uh, probably the easiest way would be through social media. They could uh, contact me on Messenger or they could go to thefirehood.org and my phone number is on there. Um, message me through there or get my phone number and text me. I tell people to text me because I usually won't answer the phone if I don't recognize the number because I've gotten so many kind of off-color calls since this. So if they just text me their name, 
and say this is what I'm calling you about, I'll answer them. And do you have links to your social media accounts on, on the website? Um, there is the Firehood Foundation on, on Instagram and on Facebook. They're separate pages. Okay. Or they can just go to Bulls Fit Pit. It's still Bulls Fit Pit on Facebook and message me through there. That's my personal one. Or uh, the Bull Hill 89 on Instagram. Nice. Or I can give you my number right now if you want to put it over the air. I don't know. That's... Sure. Yeah. All right. It's 352-255-6421. And like I was telling Dave, I asked that you text me first your name and what it is, and I will get back to you for sure. Now... We've covered a lot of ground, and I'm just wondering, through all of this stuff that, that you've experienced, the, the people that you've helped, um, are there any lessons that you've learned that, that maybe could help somebody out there listening? If... From what I've learned with the trauma exposure is that if you have an incident, a call, uh, maybe just an issue you're dealing with and you're still emotionally upset or not getting an answer for this three to five weeks later, then you need to talk to someone. Where I didn't know that. I mean, I'd have calls or I'd have, if we're talking about fire department or police officers, I'd have incidents that would last for years. You know, I might wake up from them, um, which I'm medicated with drinking and eventually drugs, they go away. Um, the stuff from childhood uh, is professional, it's needed professional, which I thought was normal. I thought most kids went through what I went through. I definitely think that anytime I'm starting to have issues, I see in the fire department we have terrible marriage rates. You know, I'm one of them. Um, we have a very hard time communicating that we need to learn to open up to a friend, to a pastor, to someone that you can confide in and go from there. And the widows, widowers, people who have lost brothers and sisters, they definitely are impacted by us not keeping them in the loop. Even just a phone call. Definitely, I hear that over and over again. Man, I can't, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to 
talk with me about all of your experiences and, and for everything that you're doing for, for first responders and for the families of first responders. It's, it's incredible. I appreciate it. I tell you, I'm hoping you come out when we walk in May. It's scheduled if I stay healthy enough to go from inside Florida line uh, down or through Georgia, probably Highway 17, and we want to take it now all the way to the Charleston 9 Memorial in West Ashley. A little less than somewhere between two and 300 miles. So it should be around the last week of May. I'm not sure of the date, but I want to try to end it the second week in June somewhere before the 17th. The reason is that uh, Charleston, a retired firefighter from there is putting on the first annual memorial stair climb for 9-11 and the Charleston 9 on June 19th. Um, it's on social media now if you want to sign up for it. And I, I kind of think that what we can do is that Savannah has asked me to walk for over a year through Georgia. So what I'm trying to do is set it up to where we can bring more publicity to that stair climb, which I think would be a great event. It's going to be in the Coliseum, so it should be a lot easier than the going up and down a, a tower. Nice. And we have good merchandise. I'm getting shirts. We got hats now. And you stickers. Sell them on the website? The website. Or message me on Facebook or Instagram. And it's firehood.org, right? Yeah, Firehood V. You have to have V in front of it. Firehoodfoundation.org. The firehoodfoundation.org. All one word. And the reason it's called the Firehood was during the first walk, I got so tired of hearing the Brotherhood, the Sisterhood, the White Hood, the Black Hood, the Chiefs, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Then I just started calling it the Firehood, and it stuck. That's awesome. This is actually, I've only had this for about a week. I was going to give that to you. It's got Shaky's name on it, if you don't mind. Because I don't have any more. And that's... I have one with Shaky's name put on it. That's me. If you don't mind, I've worn it a couple times. <laughs> but that's my favorite. Wow. You kind of look better in it than I do. <laughs> uh, give it back. <laughs> it's been a pleasure, Dave. It really has. Man, I've known you and respected you for a while now. I didn't know all that that you've gone through. Well, like I'm sure you can attest to, all the stuff that we go through helps make us who we are and we can learn something that can help somebody else out along the way, then it's served a purpose. I think that's the only way we heal fully. 
you know, I, there's real firemen I've found in the 30 some odd years now, and there's those that play firemen. And most real firemen that I know go through a lot because they give everything. And we have the hardest time sometimes uh, dealing with family, you know. My dream was to be a great father and this and that, but the fire department, it doesn't take from me. I just wanted to give more and more as I became a better fireman. And then to try to communicate it, I can remember trying to talk to my wife saying, uh, she'd say, how's your day? And I'd say, you really want to know? Yeah. Start talking, get five minutes into it, she'd turn around and go back to doing what she was doing, said, I, I, I can't hear all this. So, who do you talk to? And I think some of the death of the fire hit came when we got our separate bunk rooms and cell phones. Get back from a call and you're not sitting around talking about anything anymore. So, yeah, it is. At least as the statistics show that it, it hits us worse than the military. And it's good that you said that giving it back to others, you know, there's that saying that you will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. And I used to think, fuck, I don't want to even remember my past. But I find when I remember those days you know, I got into cocaine. Said I'd never do any drugs. I'd never drink. I didn't drink till I was 21. But I tell you, that first time I drank, after about the third beer, I felt like a spiritual experience. Like I was a different person. And I clung to that. And when that gave out after a few years, someone passed a little coke, I thought, ah, shit, it won't hurt. And that was a different feeling. Like, I felt alive again. You know, you, we share that with other guys and share the truth that it was all a lie. You know, I find that they, they listen to that because you're not talking to them out of a book like a counselor. You're saying, this was my experience. I, was, I lived in quicksand for years. It seemed like I tried to get ahead, but it would just suck me down. And I couldn't figure out what to do to make it right. You know? You, you sleep around. I was a guy that, that wanted the perfect marriage. And what would I do if someone... And I found out it was fear was my problem. Not that I needed more sex. I damn sure didn't need that. You go out, I'd be drunk with my friends, they'd say, Bull, you know, if you went home with us, you wouldn't get in trouble. Oh, I'm going to have one more. Then three hours later, the ugliest person in that bar could pay me a little bit of attention. And I'd gravitate to that attention. And then when they'd say, hey, come home with me, I would know that instant to say no, but I would say okay, and if anything happened, I would feel sick to my stomach and I never knew what it was and through 
the process of the steps, I realized it was fear. Fear first got me into it, and then I didn't have the balls to tell that person, I'm married, I can't do this. I didn't have the balls to do it. It wasn't because I was super attractive or I needed more sex or it's because I didn't have the balls to be a man I should have been. I mean, we've gone on and on about, about being a dirtbag. Shit, I was, I was, uh, I held the record, Frank Rook had told me I held the record at 50 for having nine, pulled nine people out of fires in that career. But my most famous record was going to jail five times and keeping my job. Isn't that pitiful? Now when I got arrested in Lake County, I had to stay there three days because no one knew me in Lake County and couldn't pull me out. <laughs> But I got my own cell because I got in a big fight that night in the holding cell. And they said, motherfucker, we're putting you in your own. <laughs> All right, we better cut this loose. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them. And the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.